0: Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Dandelion Energy, helping homeowners across the Northeast to lower their carbon footprints with geothermal heating and cooling systems. More information at dandelionenergy.com.
1: Today on Boston Public Radio, now that Senator Warren has released her DNA results, will Trump's Pocahontas taunts go away? Will they get worse? Is this Obama's birth certificate all over again? By yielding to her critics, has she given them the upper hand? Take on this and other headlines on today's Politics Roundup. From there, it's Charlie Sennett, who's interviewed journalist Jamal Khashoggi, discussing the latest developments in his case and how growing international pressure is forcing Trump to act by sending Mike Pompeo to meet with the Saudi king. At noon, we open the lines and ask you if, by releasing her DNA results, Senator Warren has put questions about her Native American heritage finally behind her.
2: From there, we talk to TV Bob Thompson, man, about Kanye West and his psychedelic White House soliloquy. Should it have been televised or not? Then Reverend Zarian Monroe when Emmett Price weigh in on Kanye, is it time to stop giving him a pass for waxy moronic on the 13th Amendment? That and more is next on Boston Public Radio. Marjorie you are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey
1: there, Marjorie. How are you? By the way, we are doing a debate, the second uh, debate in the the gubernatorial race between Jay Gonzalez, the Democratic challenger, and the incumbent Republican Charlie Baker, Wednesday night at 7. Yes, we are. And we've gotten a lot of emails and texts and tweets and whatever about it. If you have questions or topics you are dying to have us uh, broach, which you think we wouldn't think of on our own, email them to us at DPR. At WGBH.org or tweet us at BOS Public Radio. You can
2: add that to the seven pounds of material that Jim Browdy has already given me to read. I mean, it's taller no, no, than It's I high. It's getting high. pile.
1: It's getting a little high. I think we should be, the debate's Wednesday. I'm hoping to finish reading the stuff by next weekend, yeah. give or take a couple of days. In any case, okay. at the latest rally, his latest rally, President Trump, possibly the chagrin of historians, heaped the kind of praise he normally reserves for himself on Senate Leader Mitch McConnell.
3: You know, he goes down as the greatest leader, in my opinion, in history. What we've done is incredible together. But he's better when I'm president than he ever was when (laughs) anyone else was president.
1: Of course, uh, Trump was referring to Kentucky. Of course, the president was referring to Kentucky tough uh, McConnell's ability to stare down the angry left wing mob. As he put it, and get Brett Kavanaugh on in the Supreme Court. Journeys for their take on how Trump is using the Kavanaugh victory to fire up his base and how, now that Elizabeth Warren has released her DNA, his Pocahontas taunts may have to go away or not. And other political headlines are Steve Kerrigan and Jennifer Nasur. Jennifer is former chair of the MassGOP, founder of Conservative Women for a Better Future, and counsel to Ruben and Rudman, attorneys of law. Hi there, Jennifer. How are you? Hello. And Steve Kerrigan is president and co founder of the Massachusetts Military Heroes Fund, former CEO of the Democratic National Convention, etc., etc. Hey, Steve. <laughs> how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you both.
2: So, Steve, uh, Senator Warren, who's running against Jeff Deal, yes. she's running for re election to the Senate, and also said she's going to take a hard look at running for the presidency. Has uh, gone out and got the, a guy from ancestry.com and Stanford University to do a, a DNA test, and she appears to have. A, she, appears she's either one thirty-second or one five hundred and twelfth Native American, based on the results of this test. Six to ten generations ago, there was a. Someone with Native American blood. So, what are we to make of this?
4: Our long national nightmare is over. We now. We now know the answer that has been plaguing middle-class families all across the country for years now. Yeah. Uh, look, I think it's. I think it was wise of her we to do it now. She, I mean, she's basically dismissing Jeff Deal. Uh, Most candidates up for re-election in November wouldn't ever talk about the 2020 cycle. She's dismissing him. In a way, by the way, I don't think she would have dismissed Beth Lindstrom. I'm not just saying this because Jen's here, but I think Beth would have been a far better general election candidate against Elizabeth. She's dismissing him. She's moving toward clearing the deck of a bunch of issues. And, by the way, galvanizing a national network around this great new webpage she has that answers every question about her past and her hiring history and everything to get that all out of there. So the first few months of a presidential campaign where they dig into those things— can be more about policy and politics and less about the past.
1: Can I tell you, Jennifer, before you get your reaction, I am don't, I'm not of the uh, school who believes that any critic is all of a sudden going to say, aha, I can't do this anymore. I think Steve is right on. For her supporters or potential supporters who are anxious about it, it gives them a little comfort. And for the press... Who, and we've gotten into it a lot with her through through the years. There's a place to go doesn't mean you can't answer uh, follow-up questions, but that's the constituency this is for. It's not intended to convince. People who like calling her Pocahontas that uh, uh, that they shouldn't anymore, right?
5: No, I mean Shiva might be a little bit upset because he's going to have to take off, you know, who's the real Indian versus the fake Indian off <laughs> of his car and his bus. But uh, he's the independent. I, he's or? the independent candidate. Okay, okay. um, but That's the I mean, second
4: time someone said his name on. <laughs> <laughs>
5: There you go. <laughs> um, but you know what? I, I am a firm believer that if something comes up, just head it, head it off right at its knees, right from the very like beginning. Obama
1: did b- yes. way; He waited a long time with a birth certificate. Right.
5: And But here's the th- I don't. I mean, and Obama, I think if Obama did it from day one, there wouldn't have been any questions. Same thing with Elizabeth Warren. She goes on for six years before she even does this. I mean, really, is it a big deal? It's not a big deal other than the fact that it was information that she was hiding. And so I think that, you know, the reason— Reason that people like me are never going to let it go is because you waited six years, and well, and so yeah. at this point it's like it doesn't matter whether you're one thirty two or you know one fifty. 555th, yeah, but then, but, what's, yeah, but then you know.
4: what's next? I mean, this is the most of the criticism is coming from a party that, that nominated a guy who won't reveal his income tax returns for the first time in our modern history. And yet they wanted the last president, who was the first African-American president in history, uh, to reveal his birth certificate, which is not a requirement. You don't have to show your birth certificate. Uh, and they wanted this uh, woman to do a DNA test. I mean, I get why they delayed in doing it, because we shouldn't develop a Republican and democracy uh, where we are requiring those things of our no, kids. No, that's not
1: why she delayed in doing. Well. She delayed in doing it until her siblings' tests came back to make sure that she wasn't. But I understand get it. I if mean, there was, exactly. was another <laughs> reason <laughs> why. I understand what it would be.
5: But but I th- I don't think it's. I mean, you know, we are not a par- I think it's an overgeneralization, Steve. As much as I love you, of saying I just the, said the said entire party. So there are members. Of your party. Party. I there are members. Um, but I mean, it was you know Donald Trump asked Obama for his birth certificate. Elizabeth Warren made the claim that she was. An American, it, that she was part Indian. At Native American. Oba- Earth, o- right. o- Obama did not claim he was a U.S. citizen. I mean, that's just kind of you know. Well, obviously, so, he's uh, oh, no, in. No, no, US. no. But no. <laughs> I'm saying, I'm saying on Obama's part, he didn't need. He never had to say, you know what I'm saying? Like, she asserted asserted it and said, well, you know, I'm Native American. And so that's why I'm saying this is different than the birth certificate thing because she actually made the claim. And to me, it's six years too late. Like, thanks a lot. I'm glad. That's great. You're, you know, you had it in your genes.
1: But one last thing about this, which I don't think we have mentioned. You said, you know, something about Deal, Jeff Deal, the Republican, who will not come on our show because we will not tell him the questions in advance, which (laughs) – I have never heard of, How but in any goes. case. Saw tons of signs uh, for him down the campus. But putting weekend, that though. aside, uh, but that is what his campaign manager says. That's not made up for those who are just listening or haven't heard us say this before. It also ends, not that we needed it then, because it was clear. She is 100% running for the presidency. She didn't do this to beat Jeff Deal on November 6th. <laughs> it yes. wouldn't seem She no. did it to yes. establish her bona fides. So as she has said, and I still, we asked her when she was on uh, two weeks ago, why did you decide now to say you're going to take a hard look at this after the election, Rather than wait, I mean, I like candor, I like honesty, but she's basically saying I'm running or I'm giving this a serious, serious look. Starting November 7th, as if she hasn't already, right? Yeah, I mean,
4: I think the way our our election cycles have become more and more and more compressed, so the campaigns last from the moment the vote tally gets no, it's done. True, I, well, it's true. She's, she's going to start running on Wednesday, and she's going to start traveling the country Wednesday the 7th. to Wednesday the 7th, the day after the election. So she had to get this out of the way.
2: You know, I just got an email from one of our more conservative listeners who said that, uh, that this was a lose lose proposition for Warren because President uh, uh, Trump said jump, and she jumped high. That's the only thing that matters. It was a bad move on her part.
1: Well, By some people think that that she did take the bait, but you could say the same thing about Barack Obama and candidate Trump uh, when the birth certificate he finally did it to shut him up, and it didn't totally shut Mm -hmm. him up, but actually it worked too. Do you remember the split screen, by the way, on CNN? You and I have talked about this in the past when Trump is on some runway doing something as a candidate, and Obama is disclosing long form. Thing. Speaking of Trump, though, can we switch to uh, 60 Minutes? I have, I'm i very glad he did last night's interview because Leslie Stoll is like a real reporter. and She is, was great. I She was, was fabulous. fabulous. I have no idea why he did it, frankly, considering she is a real reporter. Here's one of the many rather odd moments. Uh, she asked the president if he still thinks climate change is a, ho- a hoax last night on 60 Minutes.
3: Do you still think that climate change is a hoax? Look, I think something's happening, something's changing, and it'll change back again. I don't think it's a hoax. I think there's probably a difference, but I don't know that it's man-made. I will say this. um, I don't want to give trillions and trillions of dollars. I don't want to lose millions and millions of jobs. I don't want to be put at a disadvantage.
1: And he goes on to say, "You know, who are those scientists she questions about the UN report? You're a Republican, you're not a huge Trump fan. I think people know from this show and your other appearances that's the case." But you know, going down the list, here uh uh I thought talking n- ridiculous stuff about climate change yet again, asked is Russia, did Russia interfere? Well, maybe it was the Chinese uh uh I don't know. A- a- on and on and on. Did he achieve uh, – it? Uh, uh, the conventional wisdom today, Jennifer, is everything is about solidifying his base. How does he – he gained more respect from me from actually going on 60 Minutes with Leslie Stahl. How did he – what did he achieve in those minutes last night?
5: I, I don't think for the president it's it's um, it's wooing more people. I really think that he's just happy – knowing that he has the base that he has. And I'll tell you why. Because, quite frankly, there's nothing on the left, right? There's nothing that the Democratic Party is doing that's going to woo over to voting for Democrats for Republicans like myself, right? So we're always going to be right of center. In the meantime, the people that he took over as his base— were the traditional lunch pail Democrats. And so as long as he continues to make those folks happy and they are firmly in his corner, Democrats lose, Republicans win. And so, I mean, the the numbers are just the numbers. So I don't have to be happy with him. you think
1: he did that last night?
5: Yes, I think so. Do
1: you? No,
4: no. and first of all, I don't think his base is made up of you know reagan democrats there are a lot of reagan democrats well in i Montreal think there, there are a lot who of did them, vote actually. for him but they are not his base his base is the extreme right xenophobic nationalistic uh, people who feel like they're being left behind which is you know i understand those feelings that they're having well there's something non-xenophobic
1: necessarily- non-misogynistic non-racist uh, 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 people who feel like they're left behind I who totally support agree. them, That's, too.
4: There were comments in there. I huge. wanted to make sure okay. there weren't one. It wasn't okay. one person I was describing. There's a lot of wealthy people. <laughs> there are a lot of wealthy people because of the economy, which is doing incredibly well. Yep. Um, I think there's probably an echo from uh, Barack Obama's years in the White House, but you know, the president, at some point, the economy is is uh, under his stead and it's doing well.
1: You yeah. know, one last thing before we take a break here on the National Front. Uh, Jennifer, it, it, Experts, the John Kings of the world, uh, uh, who obviously have great expertise doing an analysis of polls and that sort of stuff. I mean, he never says anything is a done deal. He always says, you know, if the election were now, it is a done deal. Unless there's some colossal something or other October surprise, the Democrats will, you're nodding in agreement, we will take over the House of Representatives. Is that right? Yes. What What do you fear as a good Republican? What do you fear most about Democratic control of the House of Representatives?
5: Um. Uh, I don't know if things could get much – I mean, you know, obviously as a Republican, I would like both houses and the White House to be in Republican control because I think that, you know, it takes much longer than 18 months for a president to be able to get his agenda in order and for everyone to – um, to kind of be walking together and, and accomplishing uh, their mission. I mean, you know, appropriations have gone through in the House, and I mean, I think that there have been some good things that they've been able to get done with it all being Republicans. Oh please! Um, <laughs> I mean, well, from, from the Republicans, the years Republican saying they were side. going to replace the
4: Obamacare. They had got in; they had both the House and the Senate and the White House, and they couldn't accomplish anything. Well, you know what? Listen, I mean, they've had the dream that everyone wants, but and they no one done.
5: had their act together on that, right? And and poo-poo on so them for not for not being ready of. to. To go and get that done. But I think that, you know, at this point, are we going to lose seats? We're definitely going to lose seats. I I think that this is totally going to become a Democrat-controlled House. The Senate won't change. It will still be a Republican Senate. People vote for their United States senators very differently than they do their members of Congress.
1: So we only have a couple of seconds. So this becomes a regulatory next two years, right? Because yeah. obviously Donald Trump's not going to be able to get anything controversial through Congress, no. so he he becomes it, even more obsessed with regulation and deregulation than he is now. It becomes
4: a lot of West Wing policy that comes out of it, and then we have to deal with the Democratic House with oversight over every one of those agencies, um, which I think will frankly shine a light on uh, on the Trump administration.
2: We're talking to Jennifer Nassur, and we're talking to Steve Kerrigan about politics. We're going to come local back to Massachusetts after this brief break at least break that ish, listening to 89.7 WGBH.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And if you're tuning in, we're talking politics with Jennifer Nasores, former chair of the Massachusetts GOP, and Steve Kerrigan, former CEO of the Democratic National uh, Convention there. <coughs> By the way, uh, we should say, I mentioned that we're doing a gubernatorial debate uh, Friday night at 7, live on radio and TV. Friday, is at 12.30? At some time in the 12 o'clock hour, we have a debate scheduled between the two candidates for Suffolk DA, Rachel Rollins, and Michael Maloney. Uh, after The Globe reported through Maria Kramer on uh, uh, some of the uh, the restraining orders that came out and some other uh, activities that uh, he's not denying, Michael Maloney, the, sub, the independent candidate, we decided to change the format. Just, you know, we're still doing something on Friday. We'll do a 15-minute interview with Rollins, but in part because we want to make sure that there's a full airing in public of the underlying issues in these uh, – In these uh, events with his former wife and her father, uh, a separate 15-minute interview with Mr. Maloney. Again, that's uh, Friday at the library in the 12 o'clock hour.
2: So as Jim just said that we just learned about these allegations involving Maloney, it was during the course of his divorce in 2013-2014. Uh, one of the worst things, uh, according to the ex-wife, is he threatened to cut her father's, th- slit her father's throat, and uh, threw things at her, and smashed the oven, and cut his hand. It was bloody everywhere. She had restraining orders, etc.
1: Well, he pushed her he physically. Touched yeah, he pushed her, her,
2: her and, and he smashed a chair, and gr- grabbed glasses off her face and threw them. It goes on and on and on. He says he never hit her. Anyway, but he has apologized and taken full responsibility for his actions. What I'm wondering, uh, Jim Kerrigan, does this disqualify him? Steve Kerrigan, my uncle? Steve Kerrigan, sorry. Does, Good does, um, does this disqualify him for running for, for, for district attorney?
4: Uh, I definitely think it's incredibly concerning. Like any uh, any allegations of domestic assault or violence or any of that. So, I mean, look, a par- big part of uh, the district attorney's job is to deal with victims of crime and to make sure that you're giving them the support they need as they go through the the justice system, when they are brave enough to, uh, to challenge somebody in court and to to charge them with a crime against them in, in a domestic violence situation, and so I think having someone in the DA's office who fully understands that and who doesn't have a question passed like this, I think is, is really important and something the voters need to take. What do you think, Jennifer?
5: One hundred percent agree with Steve. Yeah. I mean, this is this is I I don't see how he can um, unbiasedly be picking people up that are charged with domestic abuse and really look at it from from a um, unfiltered lens of his own situation. It's three weeks before the election. I mean, at this point, I, I, I can't see how he can recover.
1: Well, one of the things that we usually don't telegraph things, but I think it's fairly obvious some of the things we'll ask him on Friday. One of them is is campaign manager. Uh, is quoted in The Globe. This is on September 19th, saying, he's been on the front lines with people who are battling domestic violence, protecting them. He knows what it's like to file a restraining order. It would seem to me you have an obligation, if you want to represent people in any capacity, particularly as a district attorney, that when your campaign manager makes a comment like that, we should say in the spirit of full disclosure, uh, he's been on the wrong side of restraining orders, or at least the restraining order. He has been accused of some domestic abuse. It seems to me that's almost as serious a concern, the lack of transparency, as I assume the glo- dime was dropped on Maria Kramer or something, the reporter, and it came out. But in any case, we're going to ask these questions. A separate interview with Rachel Rollins on Friday and then one with uh, Michael Maloney. They've both agreed to do it, which we appreciate on both. Their, uh, from both their camps.
2: So, uh, Steve Kerrigan. Yes. <laughs> get get you on this one. Um, everybody knows Mary. the state police are involved in a Uh, massive investigation involving uh, claims of officers working for overtime that they didn't, Uh, people have pleaded guilty to embezzlement, Uh, a lot of shenanigans over at the state police. Meanwhile, we just learned a few days back that uh, three times since March, uh, and the first time was two days after the Boston Globe reported on payroll being hidden for an entire division of the state police, uh, members of the state police had tried to get payroll, attendance, and personnel documents destroyed. I should say that's a normal procedure where you get rid of records. Uh, but After they're usually time, older right. records, right. and they're not in the midst of this investigation. Well,
4: yeah. And I would say what's also normal procedure is when there's an investigation going on is freezing all document uh, destruction yeah. and making sure you maintain whatever could potentially be evidence uh, in a crime. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that the attorney general and others in law enforcement are looking into this. Um, and I just frankly hope we get to the bottom of it because we need to be able to trust our state police. Uh, not just their work on the roads and in our homes when they're coming to protect us, uh, but in how they run the organization. And that's why oversight of an organization like this and a department like that is so critical. And this yeah. is really shattering people's public trust.
1: You know, Jennifer, in the first the debate that John Keller did with uh, Gonzalez and Baker, this came up. And Gonzalez said, Gilpin, the colonel, should be fired. Uh, uh, Baker, and I'm paraphrasing, said, "Nolly, am I not going to fire her, she's initiated a lot of the fixing, for lack of a better expression, but on her watch, and some of it did start before uh, she took over, on her watch, somebody who works for her thinks it's appropriate to destroy records, as Marjorie said, in the midst of an investigation. Even if they're technically right, and I don't know that it's outside the scope, it's surely on the border of the uh, of this investigation. Does not that not reflect poorly on her, even if she didn't know about it? And by the way, we have no idea if she knows about it. There's no... There's been no transparency on that either. Isn't that a problem?
5: Well, I mean, look, I, I think it, it feels like it gives the appearance of impropriety, right, which which ends up casting doubt and cast a shadow. However, you know, if if they truly didn't know that they were doing anything wrong and they were trying to clear house and whatever, because there's a normal process of business, right, of, of They don't read the to, newspaper? <laughs> well, no. I mean, maybe, maybe if there is not an injunction to not um, uh, get rid of those records— Right. And dispose of them. And if it's just the normal course of business that in, you know, a particular time of year, they're clearing house, making way for more records. I, you know, I don't know. But I, unless if she really did not know about it, then, you know, I mean, she has Shouldn't she
1: answer that question without being asked. Shouldn't she put out a statement or hold a press conference and say, by the way, legitimate concerns have been raised about this. Uh, there was no intention, assuming she'd say this, do anything wrong. I knew nothing about it, or I did know about it, but I only knew about it. I mean, aren't we owed that after this months and months of crap out of the state cops?
5: Look, I'm I'm not responsible for them. I would say this goes along with what I said about Elizabeth Warren. It goes along with Maloney. It goes along with her. You know, if there is something out there, just get ahead of it. Well, you also Put said about statement. Elizabeth
1: Warren, it was too late. Right. Is it it was, too late it's, for them to fix no, things. And no, Elizabeth late late? Warren
5: waited six years. <laughs> so so. I, just, <laughs>
4: <laughs> I would say, I, I would just say quickly that um, you know, when this started, at the very, very beginning, the colonel should have said. No document destruction of any kind because Jennifer's right, this is probably a normal process, but yeah. that should have been a dictate from the colonel's office down throughout all of the branches of the state police to say no destruction of everything, let's just make sure that we cooperate in every way possible. I hope she did that. It seems like that we didn't should get know to that discussion. too. That's awesome, but you we know, know, but you know yeah. this
2: is a contrast. We had Bill Evans, and we, were, we are going to have uh, Commissioner Gross on the 23rd in here first, a, yeah. as well, and uh, talking to him about issues with the Boston cops every month there is such secrecy surrounding the state police. This has kind of always been true. And, you know, everybody wants their endorsement. Democrats want their endorsement. Republicans want their endorsement. We never get
4: endorse- it, but we want endorsement. it. <laughs> yeah,
2: but, but it's like a, a big deal. And it is bizarre how they just continue, even in the midst of this investigation, to kind of say, hey, we're not going to say anything. That's it. It is strange, don't you
1: think? Well, there was some, uh, there were press conferences and some responses earlier on. It just seems to me that, particularly after this first debate where there's this wide divide on Colonel Gilpin, that it would be incumbent on her, or the governor, but on her, to let the public know what the backstory is on this destruction of records thing. It doesn't look good at all. I don't know if we have time all. to
2: talk about the mayor of my hometown, Mayor Correa. Well, he's indicted. I mean, indicted well, he's like 11 grand,
1: years suppose. old, too. I
4: mean, it's like... <laughs> How old is this kid? Twenty six. Twenty six. Yeah, and How he's might... been elected twice,
2: and he beat Sam Sutter, I know. who was the former I, I, attorney of Bristol. Yeah. County.
4: Oh, that's right. It's, yeah, it's, it's
2: really it's bizarre. bizarre and. I guess he spent things on allegedly on Mercedes Benz and adult entertainment. Yeah, that's that one means.
4: thing I agree with Charlie Baker on. He should, he step, should step aside. Yes. He should, he totally should step aside.
2: Okay, we can agree. <laughs> that He's that a Mary Democrat Correa who
4: endorsed and Polito. That's the why way. I want him to step aside. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Steve.
2: <laughs> Steve. Can Carradine. you get your uncle to call in the
4: twelve o'clock hour? Absolutely.
1: If you have any relatives, Jennifer, you want That's fine too. Steve Kerrigan is president, co-founder of the
2: Massachusetts Military Heroes Fund, former CEO of the DNC, Jennifer Nasuris, former chairwoman of the mass GOP, founder of Conservative Woman for a Better Future, and counsel to Rubin and Rudman Attorneys at Law. Thank you guys so much Thank you. for Thank coming you. in. Coming up, Charlie Senate is here to go over the latest global headlines and tell us he personally interviewed the Saudi journalist who most likely was murdered last week. Charlie Senate next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to uh, Boston Public Radio Jim Brady and Marjorie again. Amid growing in- international pressure over allegations that Saudi agents are behind the torture, murder, dismemberment of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, President Trump is sending Mike Pompeo to meet with the uh, Saudi king. Uh, uh, is this too little, too late or will this send a message to Saudi Arabia that the US is taking the disappearance of Khashoggi seriously? Joining us for his take on this, and I believe he's actually interviewed, Khashoggi and other global headlines, is Charlie Senate. Charlie's a news analyst here at GBH, where he also heads up the Ground Truth Project. Charlie, it's good to see you.
6: Thanks for being here. Good to see you, Jim. Hey, Marjorie.
2: Hey, well, uh, first of all, just in case people don't know, uh, Khashoggi was, uh, uh, left the country because he, he was scared. Apparently he was on the, had been on the ins with the Saudis and he was on the outs, and then he became a Washington mm-hmm. Post columnist. And you did interview him several times. So I did. So tell us about talking to him and tell us about the implications of this most likely gruesome mm. murder.
6: Yeah. it's uh, Really, Jamal was the person who you went to see when you were in Saudi Arabia if you were a foreign correspondent visiting that incredibly opaque, impossible-to-reach place, right? And every time I'd go, um, I, would, I would be sure to try to book some time with him because of the context he provided and the sense of what's really happening under the surface. When you're in Saudi Arabia, you're in this air-conditioned cocoon And they try to prevent you from talking to people who really live out there. And he was – there was a time when I was reporting in the aftermath of 9-11 where I literally got in a big old Oldsmobile and just drove out to Yassir province where a lot of the the, um, hijackers had been recruited. And he said that is the only way you're going to ever get answers. And he was really supportive of my trying to do this, which is not advised, right? But – but it was those kind of risks that he knew you needed to take in order to understand that country, and no one took more risks than he did in terms of plumbing the depths of the place, challenging its, its leadership, its authority, uh, and, and really going after uh, the kingdom and its power and he would he would really challenge them at every turn. And that is indeed what got him in hot water with the crown prince.
1: You know, he's uh, – the president, if people haven't been following this, well, he, is, he did send Secretary Pompeo over today at uh, other times in the last few days. Unlike Congress, which in bipartisan fashion has been pretty strong on this, and correct me if I'm wrong, Charlie, at the president at times has uh, said the Saudi denial has been very strong. Sort of sounding like President Trump. Remember when he met with Putin and they had that joint press conference? He says he didn't do it. Why would he? Uh, uh, And, of course, he, 24 hours later, did a 180 on this. It could have been rogue actors. And he also, you know, I read something in the New York Times where some analyst is saying, you know, all presidents think like this when they're dealing with a human rights uh, issue. They balance other things like, for example, in his case, selling weapons to the Saudis. But the difference is Trump actually says it. Right. Trump has said he's not even an American citizen. And he's been – I'm not defending this, but he's pretty transparent about the fact, well, I got to decide if we're going to damage a relationship and lose weapon sales, right?
6: If if anyone heard or watched the 60 Minutes oh, interview of course, that with there Trump, too, yeah. it was just – it was so stark to hear President Trump articulate his foreign policy – which is purely transactional, that we have a huge weapons deal that we're going to push forward because it's going to help American jobs. Even though Jamal Khashoggi is an American resident, if not citizen, he is more than willing to say, well, you know, we don't know. How are we going to ever know whether they did it or not? We'll look into it. We'll do our best. But it's such a soft pedal, as you point out, Jim. It so sounds like the way he deals with Putin or the way he deals with Kim Jong-un who in the CBS interview he kind of defended his love remark that well I don't really love him literally but yeah we're friends that matters this is this is where Trump's foreign policy which is transactional in nature is truly put to the test are you saying that the american ideals in which we tell thugs around the world that you can't do extrajudicial killing particularly inside of an embassy in an allied country's home In Istanbul, that you can't do that. If we can't be strong enough to do that because we want to close a weapons deal, then the cynicism of who we are as a country really creeps in. We're better than that.
2: Also, it's guns. I I can't help thinking uh, that his base and the NRA and all these people, this is about – Guns, God forbid, we shouldn't sell well, weapons.
6: Uh, large weapons well, platforms. Yeah, but yeah, I take your point.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of. You're right. It's, it's not about just it's, guns. it's about
6: strategic balance. This is about Trump's foreign policy in the Middle East is built around a warm relationship with Saudi Arabia. There's a reason it's the first place he visited. Most presidents usually go to Canada. Point. That's right. That's the tradition. The presidents go see Canada first, our nearest and closest ally. He chose to go to Saudi Arabia and do the sword dance, remember? I remember. And so when he did that and he formed this alliance, this is directly to say, we are going to take the Middle East and we're going to divide it. We're going to say it's Sunni and it's Shia. We're with the Sunni. We are going to go strong in here with Saudi Arabia and we are going to really turn up the pressure on Iran. We're going to cancel this this agreement that we have with them, to, for them to stop their nuclear program in exchange for bringing them in from the cold. Trump has made it clear he's he's out of that deal. And what we're seeing is that policy, that very, very transactional policy around trying to create an alliance is now completely under pressure with this apparent, alleged killing of Jamal Khashoggi. And there's something else that I just want to be sure we get to. I hope I haven't. I'm not like I, I've had a lot of coffee. Related well, to Khashoggi, Khashoggi or <laughs> related to Khashoggi? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, which is which is basically that. Um, look, there's another angle to this, which I think is incredibly important. Jamal Khashoggi is a journalist. Journalists are under attack around the world. They, we have never seen more violence against journalists than we have in the last few years. We know this from Jim Foley. We know this from from even from our own country where that newsroom was shot up in Indianapolis and five journalists were gunned down while doing their jobs. And we have a president of the United States who calls journalists the enemy of the people. We have a president of the United States who who has rhetoric that is so against those of us who do this for a living as journalists that you can't help but wonder if the world isn't listening to that and people like Duterte and Putin— and now uh, absolutely Saudi Arabia, seems to have heard the message, hey, it's open season. If we have critics, we can take them out. I I know that's not the intention President Trump has when he says en- journalists are the enemy of the people. He means it from his own sort of Twitter uh, hyperbole that he just wants to take that and tr- sort of use it as a populist argument. But that's heard around the world. And this is absolutely a reason we're seeing Big, intense crackdown on journalism, on freedom of expression, on anyone who would dare criticize some of these autocratic regimes that Trump has shown himself to be so willing to be favorable to, whether that's Egypt, whether that's Putin, whether it's Kim Jong-un, Duterte in the Philippines, and, and now definitely the crown prince in Saudi Arabia.
2: We're going over international headlines with Charlie Sennett. We're going to keep talking to Charlie Sennett right after this brief pledge break. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio.
5: If you listen to Boston Public Radio three hours a day, that's 15 hours a week, 60 hours a month, and 720 hours a year. Maybe it's time you pitched in. Call 888 897 9424 or give online at WGBHnews.org.
1: Whoops. Not only was I not paying attention to Marjorie earlier, I wasn't paying attention to anything. God, you can say something critical of me. Okay. No, it's I meant okay. you can say that I should pay
2: attention. Go oh, ahead. okay. Pay attention. Thank Meanwhile, you. I'm going to give some thanks to some people. You are? Yes. Who did. Who do, time out of their busy days to call in and we very much appreciate it Colleen we in Westwood Mark and Newton Center, Gail in Belmont and Melissa in Princeton thank you very, very much. They only have two hour and 15 minutes to get the stainless steel straws. <laughs> By the way, can I say something? I would miss something? out if I were you. It
1: is true that the straws, which are fabulous, stainless steel, they go in a pouch that has the GBH logo on it, and they got a little cleansing brush so if something gets stuck in the straw, you can cleanse it Well, out. if you're
2: into straws, I'm into straws. Well, Not no, if you're in,
1: into environmentally safe straws Correct. is what the deal is. And if you're into $60 materializing from a generous group of GBH members, If you become a sustaining member and who wouldn't be into both those things and you do um, before two o'clock, it's a win-win kind of thing. The straw with all that sort of – in addition to whatever other gift you're picking – Plus this $60 additional thing when you go to 888-897-9424 or wgbh.org. So while Marjorie wants you to give by two because she's selfish and wants to win the contest that doesn't exist with our colleagues, you should do it for your own good reasons because you'll get this $60 additional added to whatever contribution you're generous enough to be making. Listen
2: to what Paul just emailed. He what said, he say? I think every listener should suck it up and donate for the stainless steel straw. He spent the last of his a yearly charity a budget for the straw. He's going to use it with the smug mug, which he already has. That's mm-hmm. with a ridiculous picture of Jim. Thank you. And his daughter is going to be really proud to have the stainless steel straw because she's totally against plastic straws. So thank you very much, Paul from Worcester.
1: And even if you don't have a smug mug or never want to see a smug mug, which I can understand, the straw you can use in any kind of setting. 888-897-9424. Let me explain it one more time because it's not a typical thing for us. If you become a sustaining member, which says I'm giving a certain amount per month to GBH out of my checking account or my credit card or whatever it is, this generous group of GBH members will give an additional $60 Mm -hmm. to us when you do it, you just have to do it by 2 o'clock and the added incentive besides the fact that you're increasing your contribution is you got to do the thing by 2 o'clock and you get the straw and the pa- and the pouch and the whole deal. And you
2: know what else, Jim? No. If I you drink not. a lot of water in your car, yeah. as I do, you just leave the metal straw in the car forever. That is unbelievable. It's right there when that you need it. That is amazing. So I mean it's like right there? It's right there when you oh. need it. That's right, in your bottle of water. God. Anyway, thank you very much for Last contributing. Last bottle, I hope. Uh, please contribute whatever you can. We appreciate 5 bucks. We appreciate 500 bucks. whatever you can afford. Thank you very much.
1: 888-897-9424. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Marjorie. And we're going over uh, international headlines continuing with uh, Charlie Sennett from the Ground Truth Project.
2: So Charlie Sennett, before we move off this uh, situation of this Saudi journalist Koso- K- Khashoggi, Khashoggi being allegedly murdered, Uh why so gruesome? The reports are that he was beaten and tortured, then killed, and then I get the, the most gruesome part, the body dismemberment, because yeah. they wanted to get him out of there without in, in small parts. Pardon me. But why the gruesomeness with the torture and the beatings? And
6: Welcome to Saudi Arabia. I mean, this is a place that that's the way they roll, and they have for a long time. Uh, it's a tough and often brutal place, and that can often be a brutal regime. And the idea that, that uh, this young crown prince uh, could just... Friend of Jared just, Kushner. Just, just well, apparently. Jared is managing
1: that relationship. I think it's important that it be mentioned yes. that Kushner is the primary facilitator of that relationship, no?
6: Yeah, absolutely. And the idea that, that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman could suddenly come in at 33 years old and bring a warmer, kinder, gentler face to the place. He has clear goals. He has clear regional import. He has a foreign policy that the United States is now centering around Saudi Arabia. He's under a lot of pressure. But if if we are so naive, if we don't think there are really dark, thuggish corners in every autocratic regime, whether that's in Russia, where extrajudicial killing is is also done, Kim Jong-un, who has killed many... Uh, including his own relatives, uh, through extrajudicial killing. Um, and the same with the Philippines. The way they're dealing with the drug problem in the Philippines is Duterte, another great friend of Donald Trump, is to kill drug dealers. Not yeah. No due process. exactly. Street, right. street yeah. murder. This is what happens when you go down into the dirt with autocrats and you start thinking of them transactionally as your partners. This is really what can happen. And I think it's interesting that – it is the alleged. We don't. We don't have the facts yet. This is the alleged murder of a journalist, could be what trips up Donald Trump's uh, sort of very carefully orchestrated new foreign policy in the Middle East, in partnership with Saudi Arabia. It's. It's just an an unbelievably important narrative that's unfolding and an unbelievably important criminal case, right? So covering cops for many years, right? We know how we'd go at this thing. So one of the big questions is, are they going to get forensics teams in there, right? And the answer is yes, that the Saudis have said they will allow a search of the embassy to take place. So all we know for now is Jamal Khashoggi went in on October 2nd with his fiancée waiting outside, and he never came out. Now... How Everything haunting, else, by the way,
1: how for, even though we haven't seen any of the video of the Imagine heart,
6: how, no, how Her.
1: haunting has it been to see the video nonstop of, of him, him walking, walking into the embassy? And the guy, guy welcoming you know, him. No, exactly. Uh, uh, we're talking to uh, Charlie Senate. Charlie, can we change gears because we only have a couple of minutes sure. left? Speaking of 60 minutes, here is uh, what uh, what uh, uh, the president had to say in response to Leslie Stahl about uh, the Secretary of Defense, General Mattis.
3: I have some people that I'm not thrilled with, and I have other people that I'm beyond thrilled with.
0: What about General Mattis? Is he going to leave? Well, I don't
3: know. He hasn't told me that I have a very good relationship with him. It could be that he is. I think he's sort of a Democrat, if you want to know the truth. But General Mattis is a good guy. We get along very well. He may leave. I mean, at some point, everybody leaves. Everybody. People leave. That's
2: Washington.
1: My apologies, Mr. President. He said
2: he knew more about uh, uh, c- conducting war than General That Notice. was the line that really That was the me. line, yeah. So
1: two th- he's sort of a Democrat, I assume, is code for he has <laughs> more out. liberal foreign policy <laughs> than, uh, than I do. But Mattis is one of the generals. We've talked about this ad nauseum for the last couple of years with you and without you That is allegedly provides uh, comfort. What was it? Bob Corker, the outgoing mm-hmm. Senate, uh, mm-hmm. said, you know, he's what's, uh, these generals are what stand between uh, the president or the United States and chaos. Uh, with Mattis' departure, and it sounds like it is happening, how, how much of an issue is that for uh, sane foreign policy? Look,
6: uh, General, General Mattis is still one of the last adults in the room. We've watched them all leave one by one, right? And now you have Nikki Haley leaving who right. has played a really important role inside that administration of daring to speak some truth to power gently, politely, respectfully, but to speak some truth to power. Mattis, you know, has a, has really strong opinions about NATO and understands that these alliances that we've built over 70 plus years really matter. And and uh, President Trump doesn't see it that way. He said as much on 60 minutes that we're not going to we're not going to get played transactionally in our in our economics anymore. And that's what's driving his foreign policy whether it's in the Middle East with Saudi Arabia and the arms deal or it's in, it's in NATO and some of the idea that he has that the EU is sort of ripping us off because they're not doing their share to pay for defense. Again, I, I know I said this in relation to Saudi Arabia, but it's that transactional nature that President Trump adheres to. And Mattis says there's a larger picture here about alliances and its import. If Mattis walks, the country's in trouble. I really believe that. Like How, how many people who represent stability who represent wisdom knowledge and and a basis uh can leave this administration before we all get really worried i mean what is the biggest slur in the trump administration you could say to someone he's a democrat sort of a democrat i think mattis is out
1: credible credible line charlie thank you thanks uh, you guys particularly for sharing your perspective and relationship with khashoggi that was really important to hear Thanks. Thanks so much,
2: Charlie. Charlie Sennett joins us every week. He's a news analyst here where he also heads up the Ground Truth Project. Up next, we're opening the lines, asking you about Senator Elizabeth Warren now that her now that she has released her DNA analysis, has she put an end to questions about her Native American ancestry or not? You're listening to 897 WGBH Boston Public Radio.
1: At noon on today's Boston Public Radio, for years, Senator Warren's critics have been using her claims that she has Native American ancestry against her. It's one of President Trump's greatest campaign rally hits. But now that she's released analysis for DNA, has she put an end to his Pocahontas taunts? Or did she just give Trump the upper hand by yielding to him? We'll open the lines and ask you. From there, TV Bob Thompson weighs in on the Roseanne spinoff, Meet the Connors. Can the TV show survive without its controversial matriarch?
2: From there, it's time for All Revved Up. The Reverend's Iron Monroe and Emmett Price take on the moral dilemmas of the day, which include Pope Francis and how he's responding to the resignation of Cardinal Donald Wuerl. Why is he praising him for his nobility and not rebuking him for failing to do anything about sexual abuse allegations within the church? Then we take a break from it all by way of poet Richard Blanco and another edition of Village Voice. That and more next on Boston Public Radio. Eastern Rowdy, I am Marjorie and You are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Good. Afternoon, Jim.
1: Whatever it is. Hi there, Marjorie. How are you? Good. So here's President Trump using one of his greatest hits to fire up the crowd at a recent campaign rally in Topeka, Kansas.
3: I've got more Indian blood in me than Pocahontas, and I have none. I mean, sadly, I have none, but I have more than she does. They said to her. Why do you say you're of Indian heritage? Well, my mother told me I have high cheekbones. That's the answer. Do you have any documentation? No, we don't. Oh, I see. You have high cheekbones. Well, I have high cheekbones, too. Hey, maybe I'm an Indian, and I'm going to do very well. But think of it. This is her reason the whole thing has been a fraud, but that's okay.
1: Well, actually, it isn't a fraud. Senator Warren has released DNA analysis to the Boston Globe, which provides strong evidence, in quotes that she has Native American ancestry dating back to six to 10 generations. And we want to know from you, now that she's done this, has she put Trump's Pocahontas taunts behind her? Or, like Obama before, who surrendered to Trump's challenge to release his long-form birth certificate, has she just given Trump the upper hand by legitimizing his mockery? The number is 877-301-8970. Uh, I have to tell you the truth. I was surprised. I think we when we spoke to her two times ago... One of us asked her about uh, why she wasn't doing this, particularly in light of the fact there was some precedent because the president of the United States, a prior president, Barack Obama, released the long-form birth certificate, which he didn't have to do. Uh, As I said to Jennifer Nasour and Steve Kerrigan, I don't think it's going to cause any of those who find these racist Pocahontas references to be amusing or appropriate to change their minds. I think it gives some comfort to supporters or potential supporters, and equally importantly, for people like us who probably discussed it with her, what, 10 times through the years, mm-hmm. uh, there's a whole level. If you combine this with the thing the Globe did, what, a month or two ago, having spoken to virtually every person who was on the hiring committee at Harvard and other law schools saying that her uh, self-identified status is Native American. I mean, that is true on those uh, those legal directory things had nothing to do with her hiring. On the merits, I think you'd say if this is a court of law, you'd say – not guilty, and move on. But the court of public opinion is obviously a whole different animal.
2: Yeah, well, I think what's, what's funny, too, is that uh, back in July, Trump said he was going to give uh, oh, a, g- yeah. give you a million dollars paid for by Trump to your favorite charity. This right. is to Elizabeth Warren if you take the test. That's and right. And it shows you're an Indian. Uh, well, now he says he never said he was going to pay a million dollars to Elizabeth Warren, and he said, who cares? I think you're right. I think it's the status quo if you if – you, uh, like Elizabeth Warren, you still like her. If you didn't like her, this isn't going to change anything. I think it's good
1: she did it, though. You know what the contrast is for me? Well, you
2: know what she could say now? What? Hey, where's your tax returns? So, yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, she can go well, after him.
1: Well, also... Uh we criticized and a lot of Hillary Clinton cr- uh, people criticized her for failing to disclose something she had the power to disclose, which was what did she say in those Goldman Sachs speeches? It turns out when they were finally disclosed, it was a big nothing, which really surprised me because I assumed she had something to hide or she would have disclosed it. Uh, well, that's gone too. There's nothing – people have challenged her. Some, like an emailer a few minutes ago, said, well, she gave in to Trump's uh, uh, you know, mockery. It's a bad thing. Well, bad th- – I don't know if it's a bad thing or not. All I know is – She's been almost as transparent as you can be. The only question, I guess, that hasn't been answered, I think, mm-hmm. is why did you decide to list yourself that way? Has she ever answered that question uh, no, as a Native no. American? And, well,
2: oh, yes. Oh, yes. What I'm sorry. She did. She said in that long expose that the Globe did, looking at, when they interviewed all those uh, it wasn't, law yeah. professors, well, it was an expose yeah. about her claims to be that she said about. members of her family were dying, and she felt oh, okay. that, that, that uh, she felt a surge of... Uh, Native American pride or something, because these were members that, you know, that she was wrote the powwow. So I stand corrected. So
1: whether you buy that explanation or not, there is an explanation. (laughs) And obviously, as I said to Steve Kerrigan, her unwillingness or her campaign's unwillingness to answer the question about were her siblings tested first? Yeah. Obviously, any sane person in this circumstance is going to say to her siblings, go get tested. So that I don't embarrass myself if it turns out the family lore is wrong. By the way, one more thing before we take your phone calls there's a new video on her website, and she, uh, uh, Senator Warren shows that while her Native American ancestry was not a factor in her hiring, according to the Boston Globe, that she did, as we said, take a DNA test.
6: Hi, I'm Carlos Bustamante, and I've advised companies in the direct to consumer space, including
7: Ancestry.com,
6: 23andMe, and Helix in the senator's genome. We did find five segments of Native American ancestry with very high confidence, where we believe the error rate is less than one in a thousand.
0: Now, the president likes to call my mom a liar.
8: What do the facts say?
7: The facts suggest that you absolutely have a Native American ancestor
9: in your pedigree.
8: I'm not enrolled in a tribe, and only tribes determine tribal citizenship. I understand and respect that distinction, but my family history is my family history. You know
1: what we're going to hear next if we haven't heard it already because I haven't been on Twitter since the show started? That Carlos Bustamante, who did the analysis, mm-hmm. his great-grandfather was a Democratic ward leader <laughs> in Arizona and once drove through you know, Oklahoma.
2: You know what I wonder about, um, since she clearly is is, is going to run? Um, remember when uh, – during the debate when Donald Trump like was kind of breathing down Hillary Clinton's Standing throat? Standing behind yeah. her. I wonder what how Warren will react to that. I wonder how if she ever gets gets that far and who knows if she will. There's a lot of Democrats who are going to run uh in 2020 how she would react to that.
1: Well, do you know you remember that I believe that Hillary I don't Clinton I think she'd ignore it. I believe that Hillary Clinton on her book tour for the book she wrote Shirley didn't she say that if she had it to do over again she would have confronted him. Remember, yeah. he was lurking behind her. He was walking yes, around was, the stage. Yes,
2: he, he, he was. stalking her on the stage. In any case, but but Trump, obvi- I mean, uh, uh, Warren obviously has been writing uh, Trump's face with all these tweets uh, to him. So there's a more combative thing going That's good on. Point.
1: By the way, them. when you call uh, and the lines are full, well, they're full now. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. It'd be useful if you told us where you were before these two Globe reports. Meaning, if you always believed her, and obviously we should know that. Or if you didn't and now you do, or whatever, it gives us some context for uh, the discussion. Let's start with Ellen. I don't know where you're calling from, but we're thrilled to have you. You're on Boston Public Radio. Hi, Ellen.
0: Hi, guys. I listen to you every day. And Thank enjoy you. Your program.
1: You're Thank you. Shoot.
0: Yeah, I do. I'm calling, Senator um, Warren is, you know, full disclosure, she has presented. Her ancestry with pride, and that's good. I'm calling about the president. His mockery and foolery and at, at these meetings is really unprofessional and unpresident-like. It is shocking, really.
1: Well, also, didn't he do it when he had a meeting with Native Americans Which meetings in are you the talking, White House a couple, couple of months ago?
2: Yeah, he started talking about Pocahontas yeah. in front of these uh, these gentlemen Chiefs from this something. tribe. Uh, is that what you're talking about, those Native Americans meetings? Are you talking about Kanye West, or what are you talking about?
8: Um,
0: all, of it, really, all of it, all of it, but mostly, mostly those Indian meetings. It's just how – what has gone wrong with the people in this country to accept this racism and – ridiculousness.
1: Well, can I tell you, Ellen, Ellen, if if I may, there's a newspaper in town that you used to work for, Marjorie, that didn't miss a day. Uh, 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 Not you, but didn't miss a day mocking uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren's claims, not just Donald Trump. Is that not a fair statement? I mean, virtually every day there was a column or a story or a something. So uh, it is not Solely. Yeah, yeah. That's the Boston Herald, by the way, not her current other employer, the Boston Globe. Ellen, thank you for uh, listening and thank you for your call. 877-301-897. You know, as I said to Kerrigan and Nassour, are you not stunned that she one said, I'm going to uh, uh, seriously consider right the after election? election, and she releases the, re- the results of a DNA test, well, which clearly like... suggests, at least to me... I'm running.
2: Well, it's sort of like Jeff Deal's a mosquito or something. I mean, well, especially since it's Jeff Deal's
1: strongest argument. Yeah,
2: and uh, exactly. And like I said, I saw a lot of Jeff Deal signs uh, driving up from Cape Cod. When's and he coming all in, all by the way? The place. Well, he's not coming in. Why is he I guess, not coming in? I guess his campaign a manager, who also used to work for the Boston Herald, says we have to give him advance questions, which is odd, because we've had him on many times, and we've never given him an And he's never question. asked for an advance question. No, I-, I suspect he doesn't even know that's sort her. Of stand. That's my guess. 877-301-8970
1: asking your reaction to the DNA testing and the report in the Boston Globe. The Globe says they gave uh, the results to uh, the Globe. I think it was on Sunday, I meaning yesterday, and the story was uh, was uh, written. And as you said earlier in the day, she could either be 132nd Native American if it was a six generations back or 1512th Native American if it's 10 generations back. And that's the range the ancestry person mentions. But regardless, she said she had Native American heritage. Uh, the president said she had none. And he's wrong and she's right. I mean that doesn't that's not the politics, but those are the facts.
2: Yeah, we used some emailers who are not impressed. What'd they say? Well Tom says it's still shameful either way. Uh, he's he's got her, Which is shameful that whether she's one he says it's one sixty fourth Indian but closer to one one hundred and twelfth Indian. I don't think that's correct. I think it's one thirty second Indian or one hundred and five hundred and one and five hundred and twelfth Indian. I mean it's it's not by the like way, to be, She's if, European, right? And if you're going to be uh, in any of those um, considered a Native American for purposes of the federal government, I think it's an, it's, eighth, I or think it's an eighth or something like through. that. So she's way off from that.
1: But she didn't claim. I mean, she nope, didn't claim nope, that. No,
2: no, 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 she didn't. The, the, the oddest thing she did is call herself Native American in in those
9: legal directory. And
2: her explanation was it was because her family was dying. She felt the swell of Native American pride, but that. Is 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 still problematic? What makes it less problematic is when everyone that's been interviewed said that that had nothing to do with their hiring her at Harvard Law School. Do you think
1: uh, Trump's going to pay the million dollars?
2: I think no, he he denies it. Maggie
1: and acting your next. It is,
2: it is amazing But he you know, just denies what. Well, he... it, it is amazing for for the, the the Trump the Trump people. I guess it just doesn't matter. I it obviously doesn't matter. But he just says things and he turns around and says the exact opposite. Why not? When you've got him on tape saying the first things. I mean, imagine if Sweetness. Tim Russett was around and never interviewed him on, on, on Beat the Press, how he'd hold up, when you'd say, Jim, what color is the sky? And you'd say, well, the sky is blue. And then Jim Tim Russett would hold up this thing and said, Actually, Jim, just two months ago, you insisted that the sky was purple. Here you are saying the sky is purple. Which is it, blue or purple? You know, it is amazing how well he Leslie does this. Stahl did it last night.
1: I mean, not quite. Leslie Stahl was great, in, but she great. By the way, without being I, the the great skill she showed beyond how smart she is and what a great reporter mm-hmm. she is, she didn't do it with a viciousness either. No, she just challenged him in a professional. If you didn't see the sixty minute thing, like, watching. Should really, uh, we should really yeah. watch it.
2: Let's go to Maggie and Acton. Hi, Maggie. Hi, you guys. Um, thanks for taking my
10: call. I'm sure. a big fan. Thank you. Um, Thank you. I, I just I felt like I heard this morning in talking to your guest Jennifer Nissor. Nissor, yeah. Is, um, the beginnings of the 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 sort of germ of the Republican talking point rebutting this issue as she tried to distinguish. Um, Barack Obama's birth certificate issue, which has clearly been sort of debunked and dismissed and recognized by everybody as outright racist, to this description, to this situation where she said uh, Barack Obama didn't claim to, you know, be a U.S. citizen, but uh, Elizabeth Warren did claim to be uh, Native American, and I feel like the term "claim" is has a lot of uh, it's carrying a lot of weight here, and I feel like. Um, she did not come forward in her campaign, saying she was a Native American, et cetera, et cetera. What happened was, as as you folks know, folks from the Boston Herald went back and and found something in her background and found that one book where she was a directory where she
1: was listed etc But Ma- 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 so Maggie, important. I gotta correct you. She wasn't listed. She listed, listed herself. herself. I mean I'm not just that's important. I'm not I mean, saying problem, it's a huge issue, but she didn't herself. The problem with it, Maggie, is it,
2: makes it, seem as though someone who's in it looks as of someone who is in of in campus took of affirmative action and diversity in campus took advantage of 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 Something Attempted that wasn't to take so. advantage, and and that's the problem. Now she says that's not why it happened, but you know, and part the of me rep-
1: and the earlier globe report says yes, it didn't happen.
2: The, the, you know what I mean? If you're a blue-eyed blonde calling yourself a Native American, um, it's it's. Well, a she problem. said she had Native
1: American. Right? Okay, fine. She listed herself. So that's as the a issue is that she listed herself. We're not suggesting it's like a you know the biggest issue, but. She did list herself that way. Maggie, thank you for the call. I don't think that I don't think the Jennifer Nassore argument with all due respect, as Maggie suggests, is gonna be the argument. I think the argument's gonna be ten generations ago, she might have had a Native American ancestor. Please. That's what the argument well, think, is. Well, and to if be. she
2: does get very far, she has a lot of fodder from her side about things that have been said and then Um, Denied, etc. Anyway, we're talking about Elizabeth Warren asking you if by releasing her DNA analysis she's put questions about her Native American ancestry behind her. That conversation continues on 897 WGBH Boston Public Radio. You might agree.
9: You might disagree.
2: You might even agree to disagree.
9: But whatever you think, at least you're thinking. That's why Boston Public Radio is here every weekday.
11: And it only happens with your support.
9: Call 888-897-9424.
11: Or give online at wgbhnews.org.
2: So we have this special match going on right now for sustaining members. Here's the deal. When you sign up as a sustaining member, that means you give a, a, a certain amount every month. A group of generous WGBH members will kick in an additional 60 bucks, like kicking up your contribution by 5 bucks a month uh, for the first year of your membership. You give $10 per month. It's like giving $15 per month. So it's a real great way to make your contribution go a lot further without having to give uh, any more money than you can can afford to in your budget. And then Jim's going to tell you just a second about what we're really excited about. (laughs) The stainless steel straw. Giveaway. With a brush, no idea with a pouch. How this has changed my life. The, the number is 888-897-9424, WGBH.org. You know, we've
1: been advocating sustaining membership forever because that's how we started before we worked here many, many years ago. Easier on your pocket. It's great for the people who do the budgets here so they know what to expect every single month. And as Marjorie said, by the way, that disappears at 2 o'clock, that 60 buck bump. What also disappears at uh, at two o'clock is the thing Marjorie loves. I sort of like it too. This uh, straw, the stainless steel reusable straw. It's got a brush. It's got the a pouch with the GBH logo, so it's environmentally friendly. So it's really a two for kind of thing. And the deadline on both things is two. You don't do it by two. The sixty dollars disappears as an option, and so does the uh, straw that Marjorie appears to be infatuated by. The number is eight 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 nine seven nine four two four. Or you can just do it online at wgbh uh, wgbh.org.
2: So if, as I say every time we have the pledge break time, if we didn't have these pledge break times, we would be doing commercials mm-hmm. every single solitary day. They can go four, five, six. I remember once when we were on commercial radio, commercial one we for like seven minutes. Seven minutes.
1: It wasn't long enough.
2: You don't have to <laughs> – You don't have to have commercials here. We have no commercials. It's commercial free radio, and that also says something about, uh, uh, well, just commercial free because of them. Pleasure. It really matters, and it matters because uh, you uh, sustain us, and we do not get as many people think. The bulk of our money from the government. We get the bulk of our money from small contributions from people like you. So if you're into stainless steel straws or if you just want to be a good doobie and support us because you like what you hear, please take this opportunity to become a sustaining member right now. And you, as I said, generous members will kick in an extra 60 bucks, Eight 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 nine seven nine four two four wgbh. dot wgbh.org.
1: And thanks to Kathleen from Hingham, Jillian, I hope I got it right from Great Barrington, Elena from Danvers, Brenda from Amesbury. We can't thank you enough, 888 Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brody and Marjorie Yen. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about Senator Elizabeth Warren. As you, I'm sure you know, she released her DNA analysis. It was in The Globe this morning. There's a video on her website, too, which shows that her family folklore about having Native American heritage was not fiction. It's unclear which generation, six to ten generations back, but I think the uh, the analyst, as Carlos Bustamante, said was strong with high, very high confidence. She has Native American heritage. We're asking if this clears the road to... Anything. Is this does this get put behind her or is she gonna take crap as she is at least in our email for giving in that Trump essentially got the upper hand? He challenged her and she decided to do the DNA thing. I mean, I have to say, regardless of where you are in her politics, If you can release the information to try to clear the air for fair minded people, and I think there are about four of those left in this country, then you do it.
2: We got an email from Jake who said this has changed his mind. As someone who's been very critical of Elizabeth Warren over the years, her disclosure of these DNA results is very valuable in winning my future vote. I've never supported Trump's ridiculous attacks on her, but was still suspicious, and he likes this transparency from uh, Senator Warren. That's interesting.
1: Let me just say one. It's also very, uh, regardless of where you are on the players, Trump and and Elizabeth Warren it is very hard to argue that challenging uh, uh, Obama's uh, whereabouts at birth and challenging the Native American heritage of and calling her Pocahontas is racist. I mean, it is. It, it just is. Ra- I mean, not only was he wrong in both cases, factually, he the president or he the candidate in the case of the birth certificate, but it really is. It's it's racist. David and Bill Erica, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you very much for calling. Hi.
7: Hi, Jim and Marjorie. In the interest of full disclosure, I used to be a very nice guy, but uh, somewhere along the line, a failed presidential candidate told me I was a deplorable person. But, you know, that being said, I do listen to the show regularly. Uh, we didn't say I it. Watch, I understand, but I do listen to the Seriously, I listen to the show regularly. I'm on the road for much, much of my work day. Um, I, I actually tune into that woman on at 9 o'clock on MSNBC. I forget her name. That but woman. I also watch. Uh, that woman. You know who I mean. We're a broad-minded you're a step- guy. You're we broad-minded like this. are a broad-minded
2: guy. So why are you calling What's David? Up, David? Right, I'm a
7: broad-minded guy, but here's the thing. Uh, this is never going to go away for her. And I, I, the only thing I, on a smaller scale that I can compare it to is, Marjorie, a former colleague of yours at the, uh, at the paper that will go unnamed, once christened um, uh, the Healy uh, – what was her name?
2: Moore um, Healy, the, the Attorney General?
7: No, no, no. I'm, I'm sorry. Who, who was the? Uh, oh Healy oh that
2: ran no,
1: for, uh, he means Martha Coakley and how he oh, started Coakley. calling her Marsha no, no, Coakley. No, no, no,
7: no. I, I, I mean the, the, the woman from the North Shore that ran for governor. Kerry Healy. Healy. Kerry
2: Healy, Healy ran yeah. for governor. Yeah. Right. He,
7: he, that, that, individual used to work with. Christianed her Muffy at one point. In time. Oh yes. Yeah.
2: I remember that. Somewhere yeah. in the course of that
7: whole, whole nonsense, Miss um, Healy came out and said, "I think that solves my Muffy." problem. <laughs> and it really didn't. It never went away. And I got to run, guys, but I'll, I'll be back. Okay,
1: David, David for thank you for... David doesn't um, think it's going away, essentially. And it's well, not going to go away mm, in a certain segment of the population. But the, who's that emailer? I don't know how widespread that kind of response is. He's the only is. one I found who said it's But if you're a mind. believer in transparency and, transpa- and being transparent and responds to a concern you have, then hopefully you're open-minded enough to at least consider someone's point of view. Uh, and obviously he's one of them. Again, you don't have to like her politics. You don't have to vote for her, but there was a demand by her critics led by the President of the United States that she come clean. Well, she came clean with a credible source. So uh, do you think that'll stop him from saying what we played at that rally, that I have more Native American heritage than she does I and I have none? He'll say the exact same I think thing.
2: Call- well, I don't know if he'll say that, but I think he'll keep calling her Pocahontas. He just lied about offering her a million dollars.
1: Why wouldn't he do that too? <laughs> I don't know. Who cares what the know. facts are? Who cares what the know. DNA analysis says? I mean, really?
2: Naomi from Framingham. Hi, hi Naomi. Naomi,
1: how are you?
2: Uh, hi. I'm um, glad to get on. I enjoy your show. Thanks.
8: Thank you. I just wanted to comment about the origins of that. I think it was the origins of that term, Pocahontas, which was in uh, Howie Carr's column in the Boston Herald, which I used to read because I bought the Herald because of Marjorie. to read Marjorie's column. Oh, thank and then you. Stumbled across the repulsive Mr. Carr, so um, I found that uh, the use of that term and the whole idea of um, a person having uh, claimed that identity and having it not just be a source of pride uh, is ridiculous. It is racist, it's, uh very, very racist. And I think the way that we talk about things is really, really essential. Um, for instance, I grew up in Jim Crow South in uh, Georgia in the 50s and 60s, and uh, there was this idea that one drop of black blood made you black. Okay, the one drop theory. Yeah. Uh, I guess Native Americans have to prove that they have a certain percentage in order to call themselves.
1: Well, for federal Native some yeah, sort right. of federal yeah. purposes, yeah. But Naomi, can I ask for a clarification from you? I hope – well, I I shouldn't say I hope. You don't have a problem up until these reports came out with people questioning her claims of heritage. You have a problem with the racist way in which you perceive the claims to have been questioned. Is that right? Because I have to be candid. Before I read the Globe report, what was it, a month ago, where virtually every person who had been in the room on the hiring committee said that they never once considered her heritage. I frankly thought that they probably had, or at least some well, had. That was the time when there were whole issues of minority diversity representation. and
2: women. They had no right. women on the faculty, so, so she would have been a twofer.
1: So am I at fault, too? I haven't used terms like that and never would, but am I? As no, m- I mean,
2: I, I share
8: your concern because I support affirmative action very mm-hmm. much, and I think that we do need to level the playing field with that type of action. I uh, support uh, Senator Warren's coming out with uh genetic testing. I just wanted to point out how, you know, how we use language, and how I agree. incredibly acceptable it is to be racist. I mean, Pocahontas, for example, was an Indian princess and a heroine, right? I think she
2: was. I mean, wouldn't it be a pride? I saw the Disney movie. Demo? Well, it's also
1: done. I mean, I, I don't know the history as well as I should, but I know how it was intended to be used in a disparaging demeaning no, sort a, of way, and own... I'm with you. I mean, if you want to question it on the merits, uh, uh, assuming the facts are not provided, which they weren't until recently, that's fine, but how you do it says a lot. I'm totally with you on that. Naomi, thank you for calling. We appreciate it. 877-301-8970. I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce this. Is it Marie in Brockton? Marie. Marie. Oh, I'm so Marie. sorry. My apologies, uh, Marie. That's that okay. that I could I have done. <laughs>
12: And I want to thank you very much. I listen to your show all the time. Oh, thank and you, Marie. I am very informed and have a lot of good discussions with people, and, and it helps with the people that you bring on and things you
1: discuss. Oh, you so, so nice thank to you. say that. Thank you. What's up?
12: Thank you. Um, I have two things to say, there, and I'll be brief. It's about history and culture. Uh, the Native American culture is oral. When someone, just like with the African-Americans, when they're passing down your heritage, it's oral. It's, it was not done in writing. That was more of a European thing. So there are a lot of people who had Native American blood, and they got their information from their grandmother and great-grandmother. Right. Right. And the other thing is assimilation. Native Americans in a lot of places were required to assimilate. And when they did, they had to drop anything that had to do with anything in their background mm-hmm. that spoke to Native American culture. And the only people that were ever recognized as Native American by, quote, the federal government were the ones mostly who were put on reservations and federally recognized. And it did not account for any of the many, many people who had the ancestry, whose great-great-grandmothers had died, lost land, and mm-hmm. grandfathers, and all the torture, and it doesn't recognize that. And I believed um, Elizabeth Warren when she said that, and when she put that down, there was a move around that time that it was okay to put down you are Native American without being federally recognized. And before that, that's the only way they wanted you to put it down. Mm-hmm. But if she would have cut that piece out, number one, she wouldn't exist. That is part of who she is. And her ancestors did make those sacrifices. So when they pick and people pick and choose over, you're only a little of this, you're only a little of that, that is your heritage.
1: Marie, that was well, said you know, beautifully. Yeah, Thank and you for it, your call. It's a great
2: point. And this, one of the stories points out that uh, the reason there's some uncertainty about which of her ancestors, which generation, she, you know, you which generation was because, yeah. as Marie just said, uh, people who uh, might have looked white would identify as white. It wouldn't say they were Native American mm-hmm. because they were trying to uh, you know, avoid the prejudice that they would have encountered. Um, so that's a, a, a great point. But I, Pocahontas, I, I, by the way, did not marry John Smith and apparently had a terrible life.
1: Can I, I say one more thing? Uh, despite uh, what the movie r- showed. Regardless of where you are on Donald Trump mm-hmm. and Elizabeth Warren, the thing that I think should be celebrated here, again, regardless of what you think about their politics, is transparency is good for everybody. Everybody, whether it's your tax returns, mm-hmm. in the case of one particular politician, or your herge, if it's come into question. So beyond how this plays, and I have no idea how it's going to play, I any any act of transparency is an really? act that I celebrate.
2: You've been slithering for years, Jim. Car- well, <laughs> lucks- that's why I
1: resigned from the Cambridge City Council. <laughs> I thought if I ran again, I'd have to disclose certain <laughs> things that... Believe me, we're not ripe for uh, disclosure. Okay, I I'll say no more, actually. I, I, on that.
2: You'll say no more on that. Okay, I think we are done with this discussion, correct? We're moving we on are, to talk uh, with our Bob um, well, Thompson. Well, hopefully we'll be TV. talking to
1: her in the next couple of weeks, and we can uh, continue the discussion with the senator herself.
2: We're going to talk with Bob Thompson. Up next, can the spinoff of Roseanne survive without their infamous matriarch? TV guy Bob Thompson is, joins us for that and more next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Bradley and Marjorie. So there was hugging, there was swearing, there were ruminations on alternate universes, the power of male energy and the perils of sleep deprivation and what it can do to your memory. All of it was part of what Rolling Stone has characterized as the craziest Oval Office performance of all time.
13: If he don't look good, we don't look good. This is our president. He has to be the freshest, the flyest, the flyest planes, the best factories, and we have to make our core be empowered. We have to bring jobs into America, because our best export is entertainment and ideas. But when we make everything in China and not in America, then we're cheating on our country and we're putting people in positions to have to do illegal things to end up in the cheapest factory ever, the the prison system.
1: Couldn't have said it better myself. Joining us on the line for his take on this and other TV news is Bob Thompson. Bob's professor and founding director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. Hey, Bob Thompson. Hi, how are you
9: two? Well, we're very
2: well, Bob Thompson. Could the Kanye visit to the Oval Office possibly be your (laughs) worst?
9: Well, it is my worst because it happened in the Oval Office, but there's so many things a bit. that's so complicated. As performance art, it was really quite a brilliant 10, ten minutes. Uh, uh, the fact that it was a consultation uh, with the president uh, in the White House uh, makes it something else. Then we can discuss, of course, uh, how the press covered it, which is also, I think, ambiguous, and how it was dealt with on Saturday Night Live a couple of days ago.
1: How about, can you start with how the press covered it, the, the press Press not overdo it.
9: Well, I think they did. I, I mean, there's there's a couple of ways. If 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 you're the you know head of a uh, news organization and you're deciding how much time to put on each thing, uh, one one uh, selection one could have made is to simply not cover this at all it was crazy it was uh, uh completely off the rails uh but t- t- you could have just simply said this doesn't deserve our uh our news time i think that would have been a wrong choice this was happening in front of the president even, of the united states who had invited the press in and it was in the white house i think it's therefore by definition news it gives us information about some of the things that go on in the white house <clears throat> so the next uh, uh, selection of what to do would be to cover it for the reasons I just uh, said, but then maybe cover it and let it go at that. This idea, and I think the third choice is what they took, is we're not only going to cover this because it's news, but we are going to cover it constantly because it's what everybody wants to watch, as opposed to all this complicated talk about uh, the planet uh, running out of gas, kind of thing. Um, and that's what they did, and I think the amount of coverage of this uh, was really excessive. There, I suppose, I would give the press a, uh, a a worst, but I think they had to cover it some. I, I mean, too. it happened, and it happened in a kind of important place.
2: You know, it was interesting to me, um, this is, I guess, maybe trying to have it both ways. I tuned in to uh, see the coverage on CNN, and they had the Kanye West performance And then the split screen on the other side was the devastation uh, of of the hurricane in the panhandle of Florida. So it was really, um, I mean, it was effective. I don't know if it was, I was making an editorial comment, I suppose, because you saw just every total destruction versus this kind of weird thing in the Oval Office.
9: Right. And in many cases. Uh, it wasn't just the split screen that was making the editorial comment. Many newscasters pointed out the juxtapositioning of what was happening in one place and what was happening uh, in the White House. And of course, we've got uh, Kanye's relationship to hurricanes before the famous statement he made uh, about uh, George Bush hates white people was uh, after Katrina, if I'm not mistaken. Well,
1: you know, I I, I think your answer is the right answer. It's absolutely newsworthy. And the question is how much? Thank and, you, Jim. and Well, I mean, that is, isn't that where you end up here? I mean, no, Yeah. I mean, it was so out of control. There's a piece here that says, first of all, was this live? Did they did the cable stations not cover it live?
9: I don't know. I didn't see it live. I, okay. I saw it later. Not sure if, if, who was?
1: All right. Sorry, well, what? Maybe I'm wrong about that. I was going to say if it was live, maybe that crossed the line. But in any case, we're talking to Bob Thompson, our TV guy.
9: What's your best, Bob? I'm, and this is in the uh, broken record department, uh, but Better Call Saul ended its uh, fourth season finale on the 8th of October. And that show is continuing, even though we don't pay as much attention to it anymore is continuing to really do extraordinary things and has completely escaped the gravitational pull of the masterpiece upon which it 's based
1: okay well i'm going to play a clip, but i I know i don't even need you to to ask you to promise not to tell us what happened. All I know can we say this part well it's all over the place that we're closer and closer to Jimmy becoming soul that that is i think good. But here's Jimmy, played by Bob Odenkirk, who's fabulous, explains his plan to get back into the good graces of the New Mexico Bar Association. Here it is.
3: Try this on for size.
9: (laughs) Judge Papadumian is in her chambers. She's working late. Everyone else has gone home. Suddenly, she smells something, something burning. She crosses to her door. It's warm to the touch. She opens it. (laughs) wall of flames her clerk's chamber's on fire
3: and she's trapped but then through the fire and smoke a figure emerges it's jimmy mcgill see i
1: rescue a judge now that people are going to talk about and it's it's too big
9: and probably it's not how i come back from insincere
1: so, Bob, whenever we talk to you about the greatest shows ever, I know uh, uh, Breaking Bad is on your list and mine. And Is it on yours, Marjorie, or is it too violent for you? I can't remember. I, I wasn't into it. Too violent. Okay. I <laughs> wasn't into it. So does Better Call Saul make a top 10 or a top 20 Bob Thompson list?
9: Well, I'm going to put it uh, – I, I, I like to link it with Breaking Bad as one supertext, which means we can put all the good things about Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul into one uh, you know, big program. Kind of like uh, if uh, uh, Breaking Bad is in, Inferno, Better Call Saul is Purgatory, uh, and I can't wait to get to heaven.
1: And there is that next season. This is this finale of season four is not the finale of the show. There's more to come, no, right? No, and
9: I don't think they've, they've made a plan as to when this is. I don't think they've announced that X season will be uh, the final season. And as you point out, we're moving closer and closer to the time period in which Breaking Bad is set. But... These kinds of things can be stretched out. As you recall, uh, Orange is the New Black did an entire, entire season right, that right, took right. place in three days. 24 did entire 24-episode uh, seasons that took place in one day.
1: We should make clear, I think it's uh, pretty clear from what we just said, that, that a Better Call Saul is, what do you call it, a prelude? What, what's the word used? A prequel. A
9: prequel, right. a prequel yeah. to
1: uh, the great uh, Breaking Bad. So uh, I want to ask you about Alec Baldwin's new show, and you may or may not be okay. aware. That I know while, what you're going to do. I know. While he did interview... Robert De Niro. Yeah. He actually a couple of years ago on a day that I was off, he interviewed Marjorie okay. Egan. It was very
2: embarrassing. I what must I... admit, Bob Thompson. Well, you know, because I'm on here by myself with Alec Baldwin <clears throat> and he starts asking me questions, you know, like he cares two cents about anything in my life. And I just <laughs> fell for it, hook lines. Wait, and I heard it. Me. He asked it you more questions serious. than you asked him. No, it was a ridiculous interview. I was I was, I don't uh, think it was ridiculous uh, at I was all. Charmed uh more than I should have been given his Troubled
1: past. Now, he, now, by the way, he did interview Robert De Niro, which is not nearly as interesting as the interview he did with Marjorie Egan. Right. He asked De Niro about how he was able to man- manipulate his weight for that role in Raging Bull. I think he gained like forty pounds or something. In this clip from the premiere of the Alec Baldwin show,
4: so are you? Are they wrapping you at six o'clock and
1: you're
6: going to a gym every night or what was?
7: Well, when I was doing the lighter stuff, I would uh, I would work out every day in the gym based on you know for what. The, the, when I did the older overweight stuff, I just let myself go. Right. Um, and uh, it's hard because getting back, you know, the, the, I, I gained 60 pounds. If I lo- if I, if the first 40 are easy, go back to your old <laughs> eating habits, the last 20 are always the hardest. And uh, so that's where the, the real discipline comes in.
1: Bob, do you teach in your course Alec Baldwin's interview of Marjorie or, or do, you, <laughs> do you not?
9: The uh, uh, oh, it's too late for me to come up with a comeback. For yeah. that,
2: I'm sorry. I was swooning. It was no, very embarrassing. Now that I know
9: about it. It might become uh, uh, it might become part of the curriculum, and then I will have to make a uh, an exam question about that interview. Yeah, you know, bad.
1: As, so how is he? Is, I mean, he's done some stuff on NPR too. By the way, I
2: like to show. I NPR. liked it.
1: I liked, um, I liked it too. How is he as an interviewer? Well,
9: you know, he debuted this thing, I think it was after the Oscars uh, last spring. He did a, a sneak preview oh, I didn't uh, know that. of what this show was going to be. And then and then this week was the big uh, uh, the big official debut for its Sunday weekly hour-long uh, program. And it's designed after, and he very much has said this, after the old Tom Snyder uh, Tomorrow show. Mm-hmm which was different from all the other glitzy, show-busy kinds of uh, uh, late-night interview shows. Uh, Tom Snyder just kind of got plopped down in a chair and an empty set and talked to somebody and did some really, really, really interesting interviews. I don't think Alec Baldwin is a Tom Snyder. Uh, I, I know he's been doing a lot of stuff on radio and podcasts and all the rest of it, but this is an hour on Sunday On prime time, and Sunday is the most watched week of uh, the entire, uh, or I'm sorry, most watched day of the entire Mm -hmm. week. Uh, This is prime time, not late night. It's a a 10 o'clock show. I think that's where it's staying. Um, And there was just something about tuning that in. In the whole context of what we've been going through, the last week, the last year, all of the major issues that one uh, is ticking off, and here we get this guy on a primetime interview, and it's Alec Baldwin interviewing Robert De Niro. It, it was something so, I don't know, 1992 about, you know, two old guys talking about uh, uh, how they lost weight on uh, Raging Bull. It, it, it just... By the
1: way, one of the greatest movies ever, well, you know, I assume you would agree. And it, but, you know, it's also against Sunday night football. So all, not only is it Sunday night, that's a pretty but tough— But there
2: are only—you're right. There are only certain people that can pull this off. I mean, I remember Tom Snyder a million years ago. Mark Maron has got a podcast yeah. that Obama was on. He's a guy that can pull it off. I hate to say it because he's such a sexist dog. But the—who's uh, uh, who, the big uh, star on Sirius Radio? You know, the raunchy— Talk show. Host. Howard Stern. Howard Stern. Howard Stern. I mean, there's not that many people, and uh, to pull it off, even in a short amount of time, never mind an hour, it's tough.
9: It, it is, and, and Alec Baldwin is by no means a terrible interviewer. No, he's good, he but it's there hard. He, he does, the, uh, uh, does the duty. It's just that I think of all the other people who could, could take that hour and do an interview show that would give us maybe a, a different voice, a, a set of new ideas, uh, uh, you know, something other than... And I agree, Raging Bull was a great movie, but uh, I don't know. If, if October 2018, you debut your new relevant talk, uh, uh, you know, talk series, having that conversation...
1: By the way, you know, I just realized David Letterman tried this, too. I was trying to think who did this recently. His was an hour-long one-on-one thing, starting with Obama, and those were a big nothing, right?
9: Yeah, well, they, they didn't get a whole lot of attention after they uh, started. And I think in, in his case, uh, for as good as David Letterman was in his late-night show, uh, those interviews were at times almost painfully uncomfortable. We're talking Remember about When we went, went out on the bridge, uh, uh, yeah. we talked about that, I think. I think we might have given that a worst at one point.
2: So so Bob Thompson, I'm trying to get with the program here. Jim's <laughs> always watching these great shows and ranting and raving about how great they are. So I watched the uh, opening season of the Romanovs. Oh you
1: watched one of them I oh did. great and
2: I did and it started with all the little the little uh Russians uh, getting shot, uh, including all those children the during the Russian Revolution but I just I thought it was kind of all over the place. Was this a story about the Romanos? Was it a story about one of the descendants with this flirtation with this Muslim woman that was taking care of the grandmother who was a very unappealing character or great aunt, whatever she was? I didn't know what the heck was going on.
1: (laughs) That's why you're here, Bob.
9: no, I, I think that that is about as an astute review of that first episode as, as I have as I have heard because it was all of that stuff, and I am very impressed that you actually sat through all ninety minutes of it because it took me about three hours to watch it. I would watch a half hour and then I would have to pause and make a sandwich or do something. Um, that first episode was really rough, and and uh, most of it was in French with subtitles. Exactly, which I don't have I forgot a problem that. with. But yeah.
2: Yeah. By the way, um, we should mention
1: the reason we're even talking about it is because it's the Mad Men Ma- creators. Mad Men,
2: Weiner.
1: Is it Weiner or Wiener? Whatever. Yeah.
9: Weiner. You, you know, I've heard it both ways, okay. but it's that guy. And uh, uh, you're right. It's his first big project since uh, uh, Mad Men. So we were all really paying attention to it. Now, I will, I will say this. It's going to be eight episodes, and they're all feature length, as that one was uh, uh, this week, that, uh, 90 minutes long. And I think they're all going to be about that. And each one is totally different. Different cast, different genre, different location, different... They're independent eight movies. The only thing that links them is some character in the story is supposedly a descendant of uh, uh, the Romans. I'm up through the uh, uh, second... They've only actually released the second season. This is Amazon, so they're not doing the whole thing at once. Or the second episode, I mean. And the second episode is a lot more fun that first one was exactly as Marjorie described um the second one is uh, is a lot more fun has a little bit more of the it takes place on a cruise ship uh where where all the romanov uh, descendants come and uh you know get into costume and all that it's like Romanov cosplay <laughs>
1: is this an um, is this an amazon show
9: yes a couple and, of qu- uh
1: Couple ahead, couple of questions. I, I, I think Christina Hendricks, who I loved on Mad Men, uh, is on at least the first episode. Are there other Mad Men alum who are part of the series? Uh, John
9: Slattery is oh. going to be on there. And uh, uh, I think he's on uh, episode two or three. So there are a few other Mad Men alums. but. What I think we see here is when you're a guy like Matt Weiner or Weiner and you do a, uh, a a show like Mad Men which gets, you know, completely the cultural attention that it uh, uh, that it got, he pretty much had his ticket to what to do whatever he yeah. wanted to do. This is the kind of show that I think would have been really a tough sell for anybody but someone really sitting at the top of the pyramid to uh... uh... to ever do you know subtitles are fine we've seen those completely unrelated uh, uh, stories anthologies we've seen those but all of this at once makes it a really tough sell and i think the decision to play the one they played first was a really bad decision because it was it was really weak and as marjorie said it was all over the place and by the time it ended it, it, it you didn't get any sense that uh... Um, there was absolutely no sense of pleasure or closure or anything
1: to it you know one one aside which you may or may not uh, be aware of well, half of it you're definitely not aware of I was supposed to interview Wiener or Weiner on my television show exactly a year ago, last November, when his novel came out. And then the story broke about a writer from uh, Mad Men saying that he had sexually harassed her, said, you owe it to me to let me see you naked or some such thing. Yes, and we, that's right. we told Wiener or Weiner that we would we would go ahead with the interview. Some people canceled their interviews with him. I said, we're happy to go ahead with it. But just be aware we're going to ask you questions about this, at which point he abruptly canceled the interview but the thing i hadn't thought about until we we knew you wanted to talk about the the Romanovs is these this whole problem for him totally disappeared unlike some of his colleagues in the industry who uh, uh, you know may never work again. do you have any insight into why this
9: well, I think part of it uh, had to do with the fact, and i haven't been keeping totally up on this but I think there was only one person i think who came, so uh, 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 a a writer uh, uh, who came forth and uh, she had said that that's right, that he had said that uh, she owed it to him to see her naked. She never then made any uh, formal uh, complaints is my understanding. She didn't uh, uh, go ahead with that. And nobody else to my knowledge has come forth on him. Well, the only thing that
1: I remember, I think you're right about only uh, not that one person charging you is not significant, uh, that's uh, but right. but
9: we should point that out
1: but there's also there is if i recall correctly and again this is from a year ago i think there was a woman who corroborated the story of the writer and said that she had either first hand knowledge or had been told contemporaneously but regardless whatever the reason is he was he had a career threatening charge leveled against him and uh uh unlike many others he survived to i guess create Another day with the, the Romanovs.
9: So, uh, and we uh, should point out too that uh, also that he his career has not one would have expected. I think a more explosive follow up to yeah. uh, Mad Men career wise. And if you look at his uh, uh, his resume after Mad Men, it, it's kind of light.
1: So ESPN is doing a 400-hour series or something like this <laughs> on basketball. I assume you've watched all 400, correct?
9: Okay, this this is fascinating. I almost gave this my best, but uh, uh, it's a really interesting idea. So it's a it's a 10-part, 20-hour 20-hour uh, documentary okay. on the history of basketball called Basketball: A Love Story, which I think is kind of a nice uh, mm-hmm. uh, title. But what it actually is uh, is 62 little segmented short films that will go anywhere from eight minutes to about a half hour. And those you could start seeing on ESPN back in uh, September. So 62 of these little mini films. Then for the television series, the complete thing that they just started airing on Tuesday and will air on subsequent Tuesdays, um, put these together into... Uh, two-hour chunks, and there'll be ten two-hour parts. Now, the interesting thing is these segments allow you to get, and they cover everything, professional, college, women's, Olympics, uh, scandals, social, whatever. Um, The only problem is because when you watch it linearly on, uh, you know, actually on ESPN, uh, it's not completely chronological. So stuff that would have been really good to follow up on, say, the mm-hmm. uh, uh, price or the, the point-fixing scandal in episode one are going to appear again in, uh, you know, in episode mm-hmm. five. So it's, it's a fascinating structure. I really liked the first uh, two episodes, um, and I'm not— I'm not in love with basketball, but it's. Uh, I think it's a really interesting experiment, and ESPN can do some serious documentaries. OJ made in America, case in point. Yep. Okay. So what are we watching this week, Bob Thompson? Got to be watching the Connors Tuesday, oh, right. tomorrow. Uh, oh. ABC. We're going to see whether or not uh, ABC can recapture the spectacular success of that show without its star um, I don't know how scientific it is but TV Guide did a survey of its uh, readers a couple of weeks ago and uh, they, they said will you be watching the Connors without Roseanne and 67% of the people that answered that survey said they would not be would not be it well, doesn't mean anything necessarily mm-hmm. but it's not a good sign
2: let's hear a little trailer um, from the premiere episode here it is
9: Look who's back. Tuesday, 8, 7 central. Here we are. It's the premiere event.
2: We have a winner!
9: You can't wait to see. We've always looked out for each other in this family.
0: Okay, now you're just pulling stuff out of thin air.
9: And all of your questions.
0: Has anybody even
11: noticed how much better the flow is between the refrigerator and the sink? Will.
6: Be. Answered.
11: Dan, can I talk to you for a minute?
9: The Connors.
1: One of the things that's already been answered, Bob, I think I read somewhere is uh, didn't John Goodman say that the, she dies, uh, the character dies? Is that what I read? Yes.
9: that's We're all going under that assumption because okay. he said that, and I don't think anybody denied it, so that's what we're assuming. Well, so Bob, are you mean, part of the 60s? T-
1: or if you were not who you are for a living, would you be part of the 67% or the 33%?
9: Um, No, I would tune in to watch the first one, I think, even if uh, I were a civilian. Um, But I am certainly not sure that I would. I'm continuing to watch Murphy Brown because it's my job. I would not continue to watch that if it
2: weren't. Okay, Bob Thompson. Thank um, you. Thank you very much.
1: Talk to you next week.
2: Uh, That was our. Thanks. Uh, Thank you. That was our TV man, Bob Thompson, who joins us every Monday. He's a professor and founding director of the Blair Center for TV and Popular Culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. Up next, we're going to be all revved up with the Reverends Iron Monroe and Emmett Price. We're going to talk to them about a bunch of things, including their analysis of the Kanye performance in the Oval Office.
1: Welcome back to uh, Boston Public Radio, uh, Jim Browdy and, right, and Marjorie, again, I forgot there for a second. Uh, uh, here we listen to Studio 3. Him. No, I didn't forget you. I forgot what we were doing, but oh, now okay. I know. Here we us in Studio 3 to take on the moral dilemmas of the day are Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price. Irene Monroe is a syndicated religion columnist, the Boston voice for Detours African American Heritage Trail, and a visiting researcher in the Religion and Conflict Transformation Program at BU School of Theology. Emmett is a professor and founding executive director of the Institute for the Study of Black Christian Experience at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. Hello and welcome to you, Irene, and you, Emmett. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm us glad back. to be here. Glad to, glad, be, you are. glad to
2: be here with you guys, too. So, um, after the Kanye West visit to the White House, um, which was odd, I heard a lot of people <laughs> talking about Kanye West's mental health issues, which I was totally unaware of. So what are we to make of this? It was very odd that this was going on in the White House at the very time the hurricane had decimated big sections of Florida and to to have the press covered as long as it did. Um, But was this exploitative? I mean, I don't know what to think of this.
13: Well, I don't know that any of us know what to think of it. I mean, you know, Conway addressed the mental health concerns by just saying that he needed more sleep. Yeah. because he got a second opinion. And so I think the challenge of this is that when reality TV dictates the political landscape, we have a huge problem. And the challenge of this is you have a person who is clearly having meltdowns. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to uh, prescribe or describe his, his mental status, but he clearly had a meltdown in that moment, uh, a long moment. And you had this, you know, icon, Jim Brown, sitting there like, what in the world is going on? You know, I think that was a horrible TV moment. Um, for the the stability of our nation.
11: You know, and I think, I think what bothered me about it was that it was a distraction in, in many ways. One was that we had the um, Hurricane Mike, Michael and its devastation, and, and clearly that particular day we also had a stock market, you know, crashing. Yeah. But I think that what we... we what, what I think what Kanye is trying to do, and Emmett and I have talked about it, I think that since Omar, Omarosa is no longer that sort of portal to the African-American community. I think that Kanye wants to be that. That's one. And I also think that he wants to be a peace you know, broker for both sides of, of the fence here, and he's doing it miserably. I think that Trump will use... Kanye until he's no longer until he becomes a liability and I think last Thursday was a really classic example of that I, I, and I also think that Kanye's trying to prove that the old model of black leadership is long gone when he says that Malcolm X and, and MLK have no more relevancy
1: I, I, I thought it was a joke from beginning to end but yeah, I want to get back to what you said and I think I've misunderstood you I don't know if we do or not I but we I, have a
2: Conway clip don't
1: we uh, uh, I want to get back to this Jim Brown thing uh, I I don't think Jim Brown was lured in anything. This is the new Jim Brown. I mean, many of us. I mean, he's got a checkered past anyway. Because sure. it wasn't yeah. his uh, assaulting women and that yeah. sort of stuff is a real yeah. serious yeah. problem. Yeah. Yeah. However, as a uh, political actor, the photograph that will is forever etched in my mind is four men sitting at a table in Cleveland: Muhammad Ali, Bill Russell, yeah. Jim Brown, and uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. That's right. That's right. Obviously, this guy has done a 180. It he will. is. I mean, you heard him speak afterwards. He's a big-time supporter. And by the way, yeah. this is a pretty smart character, yeah. Jim Brown. Yeah. Uh, uh, and for those who don't know, by the way, the arguably the greatest football player ever That's played, right. greatest right. lacrosse player who ever played when he was at Syracuse, one of the great athletes of all time. I mean, he's a total convert,
13: right? He he is, and he has every right to be that. Of course the, he does. The, the challenge is when you sit in the room as an African-American or black elder, you have a responsibility to that next generation to say, hey, <laughs> you are so far off the grid in this moment, this is not what we came here to talk about. Yeah. And I think that's the challenge. I think there's a responsibility for him to be that senior person. No, no matter what he believes, he can be a, a Trump, you know, fanatic. I mean, he has every right to do that. But, but he has a responsibility in that conversation where he was tacit pretty much but, but, while Kanye went don't off, you think off the he, grid. I,
11: I, think, I think he was stunned. So stunned that I think that even, even Who was Trump. was Brown? Brown. Yeah. Brown was stunned. Trump was stunned. I, I, I mean, he was quiet for 10 minutes. Have we ever known him to have an interview? I was l- looking at uh, 20, 20, not 20, 60 minutes last night. I mean, he interrupts. Yeah. So he wasn't even Trumpian, you know, in, in, in that moment here. I think what we really got to look at here is that while we might be disappointed with Jim Brown, and I was a little shocked. Is that Jim Brown again? Also wants to be a, a, a peacemaker, you know, in terms of the two warren factions here. I think he could What's do the it much better. Evidence that, by the way. Yeah, well, I think yeah, th- because I think what he's trying to say that a lot of Black Republicans are trying to say is that we're not a monolith. Okay, we see we see something in Trump that will help the African American community. He buys into the notion what? that well, well, I was going to say he buys into the notion that this with unemployment being the lowest that it's ever been that we got more black folks in, in, in you know, in jobs right. than we ever had. But the statistics, if you you know, if you look at it more closely, you begin to see no, our demographic group, meaning African Americans, are still high, this high unemployment among us.
1: Well, speaking of the unemployment uh, uh, rate, uh, which is, I mean, there, uh, the number itself does not tell the whole story, but it tells. A piece of the story, and it is low. That I assume is what prompted the president the other day to say he'd be quote honored if African Americans considered voting Republican. And that was mixed. That was glommed together uh, <laughs> with uh, him praising uh, Robert. I mean, it's almost like a Robert, it, Yeah, it's like a bad joke kind yeah. of thing. I mean, by the way, in all fairness, we've gotten some email about this today. Some people arguing he was not praising Robert e. Lee's political uh, uh, worldview. He was uh, praising him as a, a great general. I would argue that doesn't really matter really. if you're doing that at the same time right. that you're, yeah. you're you know uh, uh, you're trying to urge
13: African Americans to seriously well, consider your your party. Yeah. So what do you make of that? Well, I mean he's extremely tone deaf in that, and he and and again he should be clear in what he's saying because the message that many of us received as as black individuals goes back to charlottesville Mm -hmm. and the whole charlottesville situation was about the removal of the robert e lee statue there and so it, it goes back to this this you know contorted message of you know they're good people on both sides. Both sides right? of the aisle. So, Absolutely. I mean, Would it's you, it's a horrific uh, analogy yeah, to make. Yeah, but
11: we shouldn't be surprised because John Kelly, remember his his moment with the lost cause and and the whole idea that the reason why we had the Civil War is because we just couldn't come to some sort of you know compromise. Here. Right. So I think that so it's intentional. I agree with you, Jim. That if you say in the same same breath that you're praising the fact that you know that blacks will vote for you because of low unemployment, and at the same time you can squeeze in the lost cause mythology. About you know uh, about Lee, you 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 again you you you're just you're intentionally trying to promulgate f- you know fake news. But I think what we miss here is that for Kanye, particularly looking for heroes or new model of leadership, this weekend, uh, Colin. Uh, I mean last week, Colin Kaepernick got the W.E.B. Yeah. D- D- at, du- at Harvard. At yeah. Harvard for the very thing that he he said that he would fight until the end. Of time. I think that if we're looking for new black leaders, you know, Colin, Ka- Colin Kaepernick is an example of that.
1: Speaking of Kaepernick, were you the one to tell uh, who's the, on 60 Minutes? I only saw about 80% of it. Mm-hmm. Did he start talking about Neil Armstrong? And how Neil Armstrong didn't kneel on the... Uh, he talked
2: about it somewhere. I forget if it was 60 Minutes or someplace else. Yeah, that Neil Armstrong didn't, didn't take a knee on the moon.
10: When he I mean, I don't was know where the heck that came he from. That? I have no idea.
2: We're talking to the Reverends Monroe and Emmett Price. Uh, we're going to keep talking to them right after this brief break. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
6: It's the WGBH Membership Drive. Who done it? You done it. The motive? You love Boston Public Radio. The means? Whatever you feel you can contribute. The opportunity? Right now. Call 888-897-9424 or give online at wgbhnews.org.
1: We're not doing three. Oops, we're back. Uh, uh, So here's the deal. Uh, You know what a sustaining member is? Marjorie and I have been... Not you. I know you do, Marjorie. Even I do. do. It's shocking. That means you pick a certain amount of money, $5 a month, $10 a month, $100 a month, whatever you can afford, and you say to GBH, please take this out of my checking account or charge it to my credit card every month. Well, if you decide to become a sustaining member, as Marjorie and I did many years before we started working at GBH, uh, a generous group of GBH members will kick in an additional $60. So whatever you pledge... An additional $60 go to the GBH, which is great and it's simple. By the way, that deal expires in exactly 45 minutes at 2 o'clock. So please do it quickly at 888-897-9424 or wgbh.org. And by the way, it takes just literally a couple of minutes to do this thing. What else expires at 2 o'clock there, Marjorie Egan?
2: The uh, stainless steel straw.
1: That's it. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. I thought you were just asking. That was like a quiz. This isn't like a question. Stainless steel to
2: expire at 2 o'clock. So, if you want it, you're running out of time. You are. And you will really like it. Because I said, it it lasts forever. You know, it's stainless steel. You don't have to worry about it. Anyway, and the reason it's it's great is because it's environmentally correct. It will last forever, as I said. And you can wash it out and put it in any kind of drink, hot or cold. But the real thing is that um, we just want. We hope you can contribute whatever you can to keep the station uh, where it's at, because there are a lot of people doing a lot of great work here, and a little nod from you really means a lot to us. Anyway, eight 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 nine seven nine four two four 897 9424 wgbh.org.
1: Welcome back to uh, Boston Public Radio, Jim Brady and Marjorie Egan. If you're listening in, we're talking with Reverend Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price.
2: Okay, we have a lot to get to, so I'm going to try to race through these things as quickly as I can. There was a great story in the New York Times by Blair Kelly talking about uh, what civil rights history can teach uh, people who are very upset about Kavanaugh getting on the Supreme Court. And the essence of it is that it's kind of two steps forward, one step back, that, that people that are appalled by Kavanaugh's ascension to realize that the civil rights struggle was all about – Success preceded by failure? What? Well, More failure than success? Right.
13: I think it's five steps forward and a half. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah maybe yeah. really five steps forward and like 10 steps back. Yeah. Really. And, and so I think the point that she's making is that it's the long game. In the long haul, uh, people usually always do the right thing. And and that the civil rights movement, the Jim Crow, even the notion of slavery, that it took a long time for people to suffer for a long time in order to make
11: systemic and lasting change. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I, I I love this quote by Benjamin Franklin. He says that justice will not be served until those who are affected are as outraged as those who aren't, you know. And so I I, I think what we remember, this wonderful quote by King that we really heard through the century, it says here, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it's been towards justice. I think what I like best is that we have a midterm election. People will come out and, and vote. I mean that you know they will fight you know until hell freezes over, and I think we will fight on the ice because I, I, I'm a believer of this that the power of the people is far greater than the people in power.
1: Okay, can I be the uh, naysayer here? Even <laughs> though I want this all to be true, what you're saying—if I had said to you a couple of years ago, then it was 25 years after Anita Hill, can you imagine a situation? Since we've grown after that, quote, loss, if you consider a loss with Thomas getting to court, can you imagine in a couple of years another uh, candidate who is credibly accused of sexual uh, assault ever getting on the Supreme Court a quarter century after Anita Hill? I'm guessing most of us would have said,
13: not a chance. Well,
2: well
1: that's happens. what Emma just yeah. said. Five yeah. steps yeah. forward, yeah. ten steps yeah. back.
13: Lo- but I, the, diff- the difference between uh, Anita Hill and, and Dr. Christine Blasey Ford is that with Anita Hill, not a lot of white women actually
11: that's verbally
13: right. believed her. Mm-hmm. That's right. With this one, um, majority of ethnicities. Came out right. and and said so so there Choosing is a sign progress, of progress was made in the loss.
11: Well, yeah, yeah because yeah. also also not only were there not a lot of white women, but more believe it or not, more white women believed Anita Hill than black women because it was the whole idea that that Anita Hill was taking down a good a good black man, irrespective of the fact that the black community didn't like right, Clarence but we Thomas should, either.
2: we should remember, though, Anita Hill is really important in history because I'm old enough to remember that before Anita Hill, your boss was chasing around the office. There was nothing to do. Post Anita Hill, suddenly human resources got worried yeah. about it, yeah. and there was a place to go complain. Not that necessarily it stopped. It surely didn't. But at least it was an acknowledgment this is not something you have to put up with. This is wrong. Yeah, I mean, after we,
13: after Anita Hill, you had the the, the 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 post stamps around the office. Yes. Like, like when you, you know, employees, please wash your hands. Well, there's <laughs> nobody really managing that, but but you know that you're supposed to do that. Yeah. It's the same thing in the corporate world, in the business world, in the academic world. You know, no touching and no feeling. Yeah. You know, because, you <laughs> See, know.
11: What, what happens, what happens like with Anita Hill or the civil rights movement? White population don't get it until it affects them. So, for instance here, it's like when we were fighting, meaning LGBT community were fighting for marriage equality, they went back to Mildred Loving's case. It was only then – so it's always on the backs of the struggles of of blacks that they can catapult their argument. But yet again – it, it may not be the outcome that they, that they actually want. Christy, Christ, Christy Ford is on the backs of Anita Hill. We've gotten a lot further because now we, we recognize that we need more. We, we need to have, again, that kind of intersectional. Wait a minute. Sisterhood. Oh, sisterhood, oh, sisterhood. I yeah. thought of you over the
2: weekend. I read something that <laughs> yeah, mentioned so intersectionality. I, I thought, I have to call so Irene right away. But I want to get to, before we go, I want to get to the piece you wrote about uh, uh, Matthew Shepard. Uh, and people may remember that he was the, the, the young man that... Was beaten and left to a post to die in years Colorado ago, right? cold. We Guesses saw it because of he was gay. You're arguing something different. I mean, well, it's not so much I'm
11: arguing it as much as that I'm just lifting up the news in terms of there was a 2020 special with Elizabeth Vargas that talks about that the incident was about. A drug deal that gone bad, as opposed to it's about homophobia. And then there was a book that was written called the Book of Matt that just goes into further detail about it. I think the issue that gets me is that that when when Matthew Shepard was killed in 1998, it was a very hateful year. Um, James Byrd also died that year in Jasper, Texas. In 2009, he was dragged by the car. Yes, that's right. It was called lynching by dragging. And th- so is that it, in Texas, yeah, in Texas? Jasper, yeah, Texas. Yeah, sorry, right. And then in 2009, President. President Barack Obama signed the what is called the Matthew Bird and James and and I'm sorry, the Matthew, Matthew Shepard and James Byrd uh, hate crime bill. I say this to say that Matthew Shepard became the iconic image of LGBT hate crime, and for for the African American community of LGBT, we felt very slighted because there were a lot of just heinous crimes that had taken place, and that and the argument was that he had a better history. You know, he came from a good home. You know, he was a college you know college kid. Da 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 da. And so what happens is is that the LGBT community, white community, as well as his parents were able to protect his history. Similarly with the Civil Rights Movement, we have Rosa Parks, right? But she wasn't the first to not relinquish her seat to a white man. It was, as we say... Well, Claudette That's right. So again, it's again about using it to you know, promulgate a particular agenda.
1: Can I say two things about this? One, I haven't looked into this 100th as deeply as you have, but I have to say I respectfully disagree with your, your conclusion about why he was killed. But uh, uh, but I know you know more about it than I do. So. Oh, that's
11: not my conclusion. Nope. That's what the gentleman said. And see, and oh, I o- thought you agreed with him. Uh, well, I'm just reporting it. Okay, I'm Reporting fine. it, right? And I, I don't s-
1: find it compelling. But that, yeah. can I tell you what I do? Is interesting. Is it is so? I didn't know this till a couple of days ago. That his ashes are about to be buried at the National Cathedral. That's interesting. What's doubly interesting is they were never buried, which I did not know, Mm -hmm. because his parents were so convinced that had they been buried at a place that was identified, that the site would be desecrated Mm -hmm. by people who are behind these kinds of... But no, no,
11: no, I'm just lifting up what we call apocryphal information here because he wrote me and just says here that I spent a week in Laramie doing the 20th anniversary commemoration and was part of an excellent panel on why truth matters. And it's, again, trying to get the folks in Laramie, other than himself, to talk the truth about what happened.
2: Yeah, so we don't know what the bottom line is? We don't know. Okay. All right, well, Irene Monroe and Emmett Price, thank you very much, as always. Irene Monroe is a syndicated religion columnist, the Boston voice for Detour's African American Heritage Trail, and a visiting researcher in the Religion and Conflict Transformation Program at BU School of Theology. Emmett Price is a professor and founding executive director of the Institute for the Study of the Black Christian Experience at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Up next... It's time for Village Voice with Poet Richard Blanco. Stay tuned for that on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Bradley. She's Marjorie. And join us online to lead another edition of Village Voice, where we discuss poetry and how it can help us better understand our lives and times. It was Richard Blanco. Richard, of course, is the fifth presidential inaugural poet in U.S. history. His latest project is the fine press book. It's called Boundaries, a collaboration with photographer Jacob Hessler. Richard, it is good to speak with you. Great to be
14: here, JM. and M.
2: To... <laughs> great, to talk to you too, Rb. Wonderful, wonderful. So, so I love the way you know in the news business we always talk about the dreaded local angle. <laughs> Richard, you are great at the at the newsworthiness angle and you know playing off the news and the news outside of politics is it's it's getting cold, the fall is coming. So today we've got four poems about fall. I just love them. How do you want to yes, do this? You yes. want to start? With, with,
14: Sure sure I wanted uh uh we got yeah fall poems I know it's uh, I was trying to avoid the sort of a uh, cliche, cheesy, pretty leaf poem, but um, trying to think about fall and sort of all the layers of what that means in terms of contemplating our lives, our change, our mortality, and all the rest. So I hope that's in all these poems. I think it's in all these poems. Uh, this by the way, am dis-
1: I- Before you do, oh, I'm very disappointed. Sure. We're not doing the cliche-ridden uh, falling leaves kind of poems because that's <laughs> that's really right up. That's where I live. I want you to know. <laughs> so, but, but, Richard, before before you even read the first one, um, when I was when I we were told by Chelsea that you're going to do full poems that I was thinking when we talked a couple of weeks ago, we talked about poems about TV, and I couldn't believe there even had been any. Uh, seasons have got to be right up there in the top five topics for poets. Is that not a fair statement?
14: Certainly, certainly. And I think that, that I mean, for probably obvious reasons, but it's a time to, you know, all every season we kind of sort of pause and contemplate, which is what poets do most of the time anyway, but uh, the change in season sort of makes us makes us rethink and take inventory of our lives. And, um, and then, of course, the power of nature, right? So it's just, regardless of the season, we're always sort of in awe, and it's sort of a reminder of, of you know, our, our place in this world, mm-hmm. our mortality, but also the beauty and the eternal, right? So Perfect stuff for poets, right? <laughs> Great.
1: So I'm sorry I interrupted you and Marjorie. I just <laughs> oh, no, wanted a little right. bit of background. That's... So, what are you reading first there, Richard Blanco?
14: This is uh, First Fall by Maggie Smith, um, and it's addressed to a you, uh, which I think will become apparent as, as we read through the poem. Uh, so, here we go. I am your guide here. In the evening dark, morning streets, I point and name. Look, the sycamores. They're mottled, paint-by-number bark. Look, the leaves rustling and crisping at the edges. I walk through Schindler Park with you on my chest. Stars smolder well into daylight. Look, the pond, the ducks, the dogs paddling after their prized sticks. Fall is when the only things you know, because I've named them, begin to end. Soon I'll have another season to offer you, frost soft on the window and a porthole side there, ice sleeving the bare gray branches. The first time you see something die, you won't know it might come back. I'm desperate for you to love the world because I brought you here.
1: My God. So I'm always worried about embarrassing myself when I ask a question like this. I only know one Maggie Smith, and I'm assuming it's no, not her. No, a
2: young woman. Oh, it is? <laughs> yeah, she's How a do you, young woman. You know woman. her work? Uh, no, I don't really, but I just know who she is, and I know she's a, a young woman, and she's still yeah. uh, I think she's only in her 40s. And obviously she's talking about something that I think is so relatable to, to everybody, uh, whether they're a parent or not. So those first few months when you have a new baby, and the world seems to stop, and everything goes in slow motion. That was before uh, everybody ran around with their newborns and their cell phones, I guess but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
14: I just yeah, and that 's what I love about this poem, sort of this contemplation of sort of or this contrast of fall and things withering away and this new life in her hands, and then you, you know just all the lessons that, that 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 she will teach the child and, and just it 's just such a marvelous sort of complex combination of things, and yet so elegant and so uh, sort of conversational and so uh, honest, right um, I love those lines where where uh, where she says, "Fall is when the only things you know because i've named them begin oh, yeah. to end
2: right? yeah." Like-
14: Wow! Like, and so it's this perpetual sort of part of uh, the human condition, right? That we, uh, you know, we, st- we we appreciate things most just before they're vanishing, right? And so I don't know, I just love the layers of, and there's, and there's and there is your little pretty leaves too in the beginning. Thank you, thank you for throwing <laughs> me a bone.
4: Do you, you know Maggie?
14: Rustling and crisping at the edges. <laughs> Do you know
1: her, uh, Richard, or no?
14: No, I I don't know her personally, okay. uh, but yeah, she's she's uh, she's uh, I like her work. Um, from what I've seen, I think I may have another poem by her, or maybe thought about it earlier, mm. um, but uh, yeah, I love it for its sort of that, that sort of stark honesty and and yet um, sort of sort of deeply layered work. It's great. What's next? So this is another U poem, um, another kind of relationship. Uh, this is uh, the Blower of Leaves by January Gill O'Neill, um, who is or was a former director actually of the Mass Poetry Festival, which is in Salem, and I encourage oh. everybody to go and the spring. (laughs) It's in May, I think. Uh, But anyway, um, this is, yeah, another kind of layered relationship fall poem with leaves. (laughs) Always there's sky after sky waiting to fall. A million brilliant ambers twisting into the thinning October sun, flooding my eyes in a curtain of color. My yard is their landing strip. Today, I bow to the power of negative space, the beauty of what's missing, the hard work of yard work made harder without you, while the stiff kiss of acorns puckers the ground. I am a fool. Even as the red impatience wither and brown, they are still lovely. I feed the gaping mouths of lawn bags with their remains. All this time, I was waiting for a heavy bow high above to crash us. But really, I was waiting for you to say enough. It was a feeling that swirled inside me, a dark congruence, a tempest of the blood pulsing enough, enough. How I had mistaken it for ordinary happiness. I can forgive the wind rustling, the aging oaks, the clusters of leaf mush trapped along the fence line. But with you, there is no forgiveness, only refuse, only the lawns dying clover and weeds masquerading as grass. Nothing is ever easy or true except the leaves. They all fall, dependable as a season.
1: Boy, I'm so jealous. Uh, uh, that is just—I'm jealous too.
14: <laughs> That's how I measure yeah. when I really like a poet. Oh my God,
2: that was great! And, and know,
14: especially if they're if they're living poets, then it, you get really jealous. Oh, she's
2: she's a young woman too, right? A young African American yep, yep. woman. How do you know yes. all these people? Because you your, oh, up. you're looking them, I okay. them up. Okay, yeah. <laughs> then I don't feel
1: so bad. No, no about poets I, I don't know.
2: I don't know all these people. But but um, it makes you wonder, of course, who is the you? What happened? Where did this person go? And I, don't you love the thing about the leaf mush? Because can't we all relate to that? Up against the yeah. fence, where the leaves all get wet and they're soggy and they're in there, and you got to figure out how to, like, do you get them out with a rake or do you just reach your hands right in there and get them? You know what I mean? It's so gross.
14: And, and, yeah, and the idea of, like, you know, sort of, not to be straight, but, you know, this is typically, you know, men's work, right? Picking up the leaves and then sort of this. this not my, that house. She sets there. <laughs> my house. My house, they don't get picked up at all. Exactly. <laughs> that's why we have no grass. <laughs> but I just love how she layered that. You know, the, the idea of uh, this i this relationship with a beloved, whether it's a husband or or, or a significant other or whatnot, but that person gone as as ah. falls, changes. It's just like so and yet it's hopeful and or yet there's a, a certain um not hopeful but there's a certain uh a passage, right? There's a sense of 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 this is the moment where I go on, right? Nothing is ever nothing is ever easy or true except the leaves. They all fall, dependable seasons. Sort of, you know, just sort of accepting that life goes on, right? That things move, that things change, and that's what fall reminds us of, right? <laughs> so
1: uh, before we uh, take a quick break here and then you're going to read a couple more when we get back, you can play Shrink if you don't mind for a second. Sure. <laughs> uh, as Marjorie knows, we've discussed it on the show. It was recently this Friday when we had that folk, that uh, country singer on with us who wrote uh-huh. a song about how much she hates winter. Yeah. I hate fall uh, primarily because winter 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 follows fall. How is it that I hate fall and winter so much and I love these poems? Can you figure that one out?
13: Well,
14: poets have a way of prying sort of uh, another another layer of understanding (laughs) of sort of getting you to see why you actually hate something Mm -hmm. is actually on the flip side of that is perhaps another recognition that makes you uh, ponder and understand something a little bit differently. Um, And I think that's what, that's what these, these poems are sort of doing. They're getting you to maybe see the beautiful part of fall in all its sadness and glory. Um, Hopefully that's it. (laughs) But um, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not – I don't have a degree in psychology.
1: Uh, well, it's too late,
14: <laughs> psychology well, Let me tell you, I'm getting more <laughs> depressed every day. I'll leave, that, I'll leave day. that up to Marjorie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. That's for sure. We're talking with poet Richard Blanco. We're going to keep talking to him right after this brief break. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
6: This is Boston Public Radio on WGBH. Made possible thanks to listener contributions. Your support of just $5 or $10 a month keeps Jim and Marjorie and the great conversations coming your way. Please take a moment to give now at WGBHnews.org or call 888-897-9424.
1: Times are running. 22 minutes left. I'm speaking for Marjorie here because, you know, she's very competitive. She wants to make sure we raise more money than all of our colleagues. So if you're in the Marjorie Egan School of uh, Pledge Time, 22 minutes uh, uh, after which we don't get credit. Now, that's her argument. My argument is this. If you become a sustaining member now, 5 bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, $100 a month, automatically, but only until 2 o'clock, a group of generous WGBH members will kick in an additional $60. That's not all. If you do $10 a month as a sustainer, you get that great GBH umbrella that we talked about before. They throw in this beautiful stainless steel straw. Marjorie's laughing. She'll tell me why in a minute. If you do $15, you get these great earbud things that we have here also a GBH Special. And they also throw in the straw. So it's like a – it's not just a twofer. It's like a fourfer. You get all these fabulous things, but the deal, the 60 bucks extra if you become a sustaining member – And the straw thing, as an extra throw-in, disappeared, too. So you have 21 minutes. 888-897-9424, WGBH.org. What are you laughing about?
2: I'm laughing about an email from Art from West Bridgewater. What does he say? He says, wow, 15 hours of programming, and Jim managed to talk for 14 of them. Instead of a pledge match for giving away metal straws, maybe they should do a free Marjorie or gag gym promotion where donations are matched, but uninterrupted millions. minutes of Marjorie speaking might set a new record.
1: I want to thank <laughs> Anne in Newburyport. I, don't want to, I do not want to thank Art. Christopher in Boston. We actually love Art. Christine in Westford and Claire in Warwick of Rhode Island.
2: Okay. And I do want to say we only have 20 minutes left uh, for the show. We probably won't get the free Marjorie T-shirt this time. But here's Maybe, what you, you are going to get. You are going to get um, this this, this. Stainless steel straw, and you also can get for ten bucks. I think for ten bucks you can get the umbrella, and for fifteen bucks you can get the uh, Bluetooth earbuds. Plus ten a month, the straw. fifteen a month. Right. That's two gifts. So that's pretty yeah. pretty cool. And for the next twenty minutes, uh, when you sign up as a sustaining member, a group of generous uh, WG Beach members will add additional money to your pledge. So you give ten bucks a month; it's like fifteen dollars a month. These are really great incentives. And I think I'm you know making jokes about these metal straws. I mean, they really are great. They are great because actually. they do they last are, forever, and then you feel like you're not being you know, your carbon footprint environmentally is teeny right. tiny bit small than it would have been otherwise. So anyway, we want to thank all you guys for taking the time to, uh, uh, to donate to us today. Here's how you do it. You can call 888-897-9424 or you can log in to wgbh.org and it only takes a second. And we thank you for whatever you can give, big or small.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking to Richard Blanco for another edition of uh, Village Voice and the subject matter about which all the poems focus is uh, full. So uh, what's – you know, Richard Blanco, actually, before uh, we get to the next poem, uh, I'm assuming that none of these poems is written by you. Is that correct?
14: No, none of them today. And I was just going to say picking up on how you – uh, uh, my my least favorite season is summer, <laughs> because I grew up in um I grew up in Miami. So I, well, I should say my least favorite season is sort of spring for the same reasons that perhaps really your fall signals <laughs> winter to you. Yeah, in spring here, uh, where growing up in Miami, you knew what was coming in the summer and the heat and the, the unbearable humidity. humidity. Yeah. So have so you written about
1: have you written about fall? Or you just chose not to include?
14: I've written about, about fall. Uh, I I I moved to Connecticut. Uh, when I was thirty, and it was my first real fall experience, and mm-hmm. I wrote a little bit. I, I now that I remember, I wrote uh, it was never published, but because I, I the relationship went nowhere. But mm-hmm. it was a love poem <laughs> wrapped up in fall, and it was it was you know I had to do some of these similar themes about change. I had just moved up there, I had met somebody, and so. But it never, never made it into a book.
1: <laughs> okay, fair enough. But what?
14: I don't feel I own that experience in the way that sort of perhaps, you know, northerners do because nothing changes in
1: Miami. <laughs> okay.
2: Well, we got two more poems on Autumn Left. I'm happy to say I know one of them before. You do? Uh, of course, the Robert Frost poem.
1: Oh, well, I know that one. I realized too. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even know that yeah. was on the list. Okay, yeah. what's next? So this is a very uh, pretty famous,
14: not pretty, terribly, amazingly famous poem uh, by James Wright. Um, he was born in 1927, died in 1980. He was uh, uh, from Ohio, from Martinsbury, Ohio. Um, and it's one of the, just one of the canonical pieces of a, a, a canonical poem in American poetry. Um, so I think it's self-explanatory, but it's fall in a whole other sort of dimension, <laughs> or say another, another take, uh, another facet of this fall theme. Autumn begins in Martins Ferry, Ohio, in the Shreve High football stadium. I think of Pollock's nursing long beers in Tiltonsville, and gray faces of Negroes in the blast furnace at Benwood and the ruptured night watchmen of wheeling steel dreaming of heroes. All the proud fathers are ashamed to go home. Their women cluck like starved pullets, dying for love. Therefore, their sons grow suicidally beautiful at the beginning of October and gallop terribly against each other's bodies. Wow.
9: So this this is one of the <laughs> things that poetry one. really
14: freaks me out. It's that when you see how many lines there are written—three, eight—but eight, less than about ten lines can capture a whole psychology of an entire region, a town, its people, the men, layers about gender, about—I mean, there's so many layers to this poem. Um, and also, co- the,
1: describing something yep. so mundane and making it so extraordinary is also. Just otherworldly. But go ahead. I'm sorry.
14: No, and I – well, that's exactly part of what the poem is doing, right? The, this sort of very upfront sort of seemingly seemingly conversational or uh, seemingly plain language because it, it, there's already so much drama in these people's lives and the, mm-hmm. in the lives of this town that you don't need to add to that in a way. But um, certainly not the poem t- uh, to read at a f- before the football Sunday. But, <laughs> 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 but it uh, it echoes, you know, this fall, this change, and there's, there's just a, you know, a, the last line of the football game, which is so amazing, like, as they gallop terribly against oh, each other's bodies, suicidally beautiful, this idea of sort of being trapped in this cycle, right? And so it's like this, the football game, and it's the one thing that the town can gather around. It sort of uh, can sort of uh, at least have the illusion of, of being empowered, of a certain uh, dreaming, dreaming of heroes like, he, like uh, right? Rights here, um, but then of course there's this knowing that this is probably the same. You know, the suns will end up in the same cycle as this. So, so many, so many, and he's. I mean, this is part of his experience, obviously, from the title. Um, so it's just does. Now, if you didn't like fall. Before Jim, <laughs> after this poem, you'd probably like it even less. <laughs> maybe or maybe not.
1: <laughs> but I don't. By the way, I don't know if you said the. T- it's called "Autumn Begins" in Martins Ferry, Ohio. I forget if you said. You know the, what? It reminds uh, me of yeah.
2: uh, you know that the Mr. Bruce Springsteen fan, the glory days. Yeah, talking about that. Yeah, the, yeah. And, you know, and it also reminds you of all the people that are vicariously, hysterically living through their kids' prowess, even if it's only like. What's well, a variation of glory
1: Day. I mean, yeah, yeah. In, and through in, their own alleged. Prowess, yeah. which disappeared. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's interesting. Yep. There's okay. a very
2: great story in the Boston Globe this weekend about uh, uh, Aaron Hernandez and his childhood. A series, yeah. And it's really fascinating, too, because, of course, he grew up to be a, a murderer, great, a great athlete, great football player, but talks about the whole messed up uh, childhood he grew up in with this reverently uh, anti-gay mm-hmm. uh, father, and apparently Aaron Hernandez had some gay experiences in high school. Anyway, it just talks about his whole... You know, bringing glory to his hometown in Connecticut, and then it's a to spotlight series for those. Yeah, it's who really don't good. Know. Okay,
14: oh, so Robert, also, but yeah, that's exactly right. And and the whole Bruce Springsteen, that's exactly what what what's being captured in this poem. And then, um, you know, there's also sort of in uh, uh, the idea of masculinity, but also an emasculization by mm-hmm. the by, by the sickle. All the proud fathers are ashamed to go home, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So like, that's yeah, great. And, or rabbit still... run,
2: yeah. yeah. Right. You know, the basketball star in that John Updike series, too. Anyway, I'll shut up now. Okay, so Robert Frost I've actually heard of, Richard. <laughs> yes, heard That's of it. <laughs> and if you weren't depressed before, this is really going to kill you. <laughs> okay,
1: take it away,
14: and Actually, Richard. now that I remember, I love Fall in Manhattan because... It signals the end of the heat, yeah. <laughs> and looking forward to the to the colder months. Anyway, this is a, uh, of course, probably most people have read this poem at some point in in high school English oh, or college sure. English. Um, but like everything Frost, you know, there are dark layers to this, and then there's, the, or I should say, there's, there's, there's many layers to it. But it's not, it's not, still not your pretty leaf poem, you know, in many ways. No, it's not. <laughs> Nothing gold can stay. Nature's first green is gold, her heart is hue to hold, her early leaves a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief, so dawn goes down today. Nothing gold can stay.
2: Oh, Sucker <laughs> punch just right, beautiful I about that, right? <laughs>
14: And uh, I think this is probably the the uh the oldest poet we've done on the on the show so far, uh, but it's so appropriate and also just uh, just so uh, again just again the same sorts of themes of 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 how you know fall is this
9: you
14: know, One of the things that po- poets do and poems do is always sort of bring up the contradictions that that yeah. we don't always look at and the power of those contradictions and and what truth and beauty there is in there. And so in this poem, you know, sort of deconstructing fall as. You know, in a way, it's yes. On the one hand, he's saying, you know, uh, or so you know, there's these layers of things withering or going and dying, and could be a sad thing. But in it, with each loss, there's in some ways a gain. There's something else to be gained, um, even if that means sort of a recognition. Um, Even the idea of Eden falling there, so so Eden sank to grief. You know, there's this idea that also, well, that also, you know. It was the fall of paradise, but it also opens up to, like, what is a real human experience, right? So, genius.
1: <laughs> Forty words, too. Only 40 words. Hey, before uh, – I should know this, but since you're the fifth inaugural poet in U.S. history, <laughs> Frost was the first, yes?
14: Oh, yeah. That, yeah, yeah, he, he was. I just obviously for JFK, right, yeah. He was the very first for JFK, yeah. And he um, – uh yeah, yeah, he Isn't wrote, there some
1: story, that. I hope I got this, isn't there some story that he had written a poem for JFK, but read his typewriter, it. the ribbon was so crappy no, I think that he couldn't, no, I, I thought the type, <laughs> I thought the tape, the type was unreadable, uh, so. I don't know,
2: the, I thought
14: there's it a lot like of the sunlight there, or something, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of myths around it, it's funny as you say that, uh. Jim, because there's, I hadn't heard that part. Yet, well, I'm not sure. But I'm there's right a right lot either. of myths surrounding, but supposedly the one I've heard is that he had written this poem, but then they used to do the inauguration on the backside of of the Capitol mm-hmm. where the sun rose. Oh, I
1: think I've heard and this so,
14: too, yeah. And so he was blinded by the light, or so he says. And then, and then he just read a poem uh, from memory. Uh, and and uh, pretty good, and so that, huh? That's what I. Yeah, grace <laughs> but, under pressure. <laughs> but there are some stories that. You know, Frost was a little persnickety guy, like that he didn't like the poem he wrote, and so he was just like, "Oh, I can't, I can't see, I can't see." By the (laughs) way, speaking of Bruce Springsteen, (laughs) who
1: wrote "Blinded by the Light"? By the way,
2: there you go, Jim. Bruce Springsteen, another another link in for the wall. Another link,
1: yeah, he did one (laughs) of the great songs. Hey, Richard, that was great as always. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Great,
14: great to Richard. Thank you
2: once again. You don't know how much I enjoy uh, talking with you. It's great. Thank you so much. Richard Blanco is the fifth presidential inaugural poet in U.S. history. His latest project is the fine press book, Boundaries, a collaboration with photographer Jacob Hessler. Thank you for listening. We are done to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tune in tomorrow or join us live at our studio at the Boston Public Library for Boston City Council President Andrea Campbell and writer Rebecca Traister on her new book about mad, angry women. <laughs> of course, you can always find us by way of our, our podcast or iTunes. I want to thank our crew, Chelsea Murs, Amanda McGowan, Tori Bedf- Bedford, Jason Teresky, Arjun Singh, our engineer, John the Claw Parker, we're a production of WGBH. Jim brady has got his spectacular show coming up. What are I'd you teeing so. up tonight, well, Jim teeing up.
1: Well, uh, the uh, midterm election is just a few weeks away, but the presidential race has already started. Elizabeth Warren releases DNA evidence, Trump stumps on 60 Minutes. And the Clintons take their act on the road. We'll discuss them all with Jennifer Braceras from the Independent Women's Forum and Scott Lehigh from the Globe. A brilliant new NOVA documentary. The producer and a doctor at MGH is going to join me. It's about addiction and it is unlike any other documentary on addiction you've ever seen. Jared's got a great package. And I'm going to talk about Trump's interesting relationship with African-Americans. That's all tonight, 7 o'clock. And we should say again... Wednesday night, we are doing the second gubernatorial yes, debate between Democratic challenger Jay Gonzalez and the incumbent Republican governor, Charlie Baker. If you have questions or suggestions, we'd like them by the end of today at BPRWGBH.org or at bos. Public Radio on uh, Twitter. Friday, we will be doing uh, two discussions, a variation on our original plan for the two candidates who are running for Suffolk County DA. So we hope you'll watch us and listen to us Wednesday night at 7 and join us or listen to us Friday at noon.
2: I'm Marjorie Egan.
1: I am Jim Browdy. Thank
2: you so much for tuning in today. We much appreciate it and hope to see you again tomorrow. Bye.